The topic today is one that I feel like is so important and yet hardly ever really talked about. Anything that somebody says all of a sudden, I'm starting to think about the vasculature and the vasculature in the brain. It took a while to finally uh, dig the victim out completely uh, because he was heads up, feet down, and his keys were stuck in the snow. And I think if you have a two-year-old who comes in under the influence of marijuana, then that is a reasonable suspicion. Not a great mnemonic because I, I don't know what the H's and T's are off the top of my head. I always have to look it up, right? December. Welcome to December MRAP. Can you believe it, Swami? We're here. It's the end of the year. I cannot believe it's already the end of the year. The year seems to have gone quite quickly, Jan. I mean, moving from the fall into the winter, and it's been a beautiful winter. It really has been. It's been lovely. I can't wait for the new year to come. And uh, hopefully, hopefully things are going to be better on the other side of this year, Jan. Well, you know, when we said goodbye to 2020, we thought that 2021 was going to be a whole new world and life was going to be great. And it turns out that there's been some bumps in the road here in 2021, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yes, and we have to have a little bit of patience as things start to return to normal, Jan. Not something that emergency physicians are very good at. Patience is not our strong suit. That's right. Well, actually, patience are our strong it's perfect. suit. <laughs> patience are our strong suit. That's right. That's right. Right. That is exactly right. And actually, the, the idea that patience is not our strong point, I think, actually comes up in the case that you're going to discuss with us. And I can't wait to get into this case. The case. All right, Tommy, I have for you a 30-year-old male. Now, this is a paraplegic male. He had a gunshot wound 10 years ago, and he's presenting with a chief complaint of abdominal pain and a little bit of increased spasticity. He, just to give you a little idea about this patient, he's got no sensation from his chest down, but he does have the ability to feel some abdominal pain. Now, he has a history of DVT and PE. He takes a Pixaban. He has an IVC filter in place. And he has a neurogenic bladder and self-caths. Now, he has a frequent history of UTIs, as many patients do who self-cath, and he has a history of ESBL. Now, his abdominal pain is mostly right lower quadrant. He tells you that he thinks his urine has looked a little cloudy recently. So, Swami, what do you want to know about this patient? There's a lot of good stuff already in there, but obviously I want his vitals. How sick is this guy? How does he look when I see him? His past surgical history with this gunshot wound, does he have a bunch of abdominal surgeries in the past? Do I have to worry about some abdominal pathology that's a post-surgical abdominal pathology? You mentioned a Pixaban, but other medications that the patient could be on, any changes in those medications? And one thing we see when patients have spasticity is some patients are on intrathecal pump, especially with baclofen. And if the baclofen, they're having baclofen withdrawal, sometimes they can get spasticity from that. Prior episodes of similar symptoms, always really important. This Patient has uh, had this gunshot wound from 10 years ago. They may have had frequent similar episodes, so that can be helpful. And then, of course, what do we see on the exam? All right, great question. So let me fill you in on a little details here. All right, so let me give you his vitals. His blood pressure is 121 over 83. His heart rate is 120. He's got a normal respiratory rate, normal pulse ox, normal temp. In terms of surgical history, he's had a cholecystectomy, but not a ton of other surgeries. He's not had any medication changes recently. He is not on intrathecal baclofen. Yes, he has had prior episodes like this. He says that this feels like things he's had before. And on exam, his abdomen has diffuse tenderness, but it's mildly tender. There's no rebound. There's no guarding. It seems a little more focally tender in the right lower quadrant to you. So given that exam, given those vitals, what are your top three possible diagnoses? And if you're going to order studies, what do you want? Anyone who's had any intra-abdominal surgery, you got to think about a small bowel obstruction. So that is definitely on my list of possibilities. Patient still has his appendix. 
appendicitis, it's right lower quadrant pain, a UTI or pilo that could be at play here as well. The patient has said that they've had frequent UTIs in the past. And, and then there's a host of other intra-abdominal pathology that's going to be circulating. The fact they have a cholecystectomy takes that off the list. It was something that I definitely was thinking about before. And I think as far as testing, most of the lab tests that we're going to get are not actually going to be that helpful. But I want a UA in a culture. I want an abdominal ultrasound because that might actually give me some early info on a small bowel obstruction. It could give me info on a free fluid in the belly, especially because this patient is on a blood thinner. Maybe they had some trauma that they don't remember. And then Jen, I think I'm probably going to be sending this patient through the tube of truth. I think I'm probably going to want a CT scan based on the exam you're telling me and the fact that the patient doesn't have normal sensation. All right. So hold on to that thought about imaging, but I want to back up to the urinalysis. So can we talk about the value of a UA in a patient like this? Is I, it I worth sending? Not. I'd rather not talk about <laughs> the utility because it's really hard. We're going to send it, but it's really hard to know what the utility is. I think that's right. And so I wanted to pause here just for a minute and just talk about what the UA, what you would expect it to show. What are you actually even looking for? So what do you think? These patients are often colonized. So I guarantee that when the lab looks at it, they're going to see some bacteria. Leukes and nitrites, absolutely. White cells, absolutely. And so almost every UA you get from a patient like this is going to look like a UTI. And it's hard to know what to do with that information. But we know patients who have a neurogenic bladder that's self-capped, this is pretty common. And so we sometimes rely on the urine culture. But first of all, we're not going to get that urine culture back while we're in the emergency department. And sometimes when the urine culture comes back, it's kind of mixed because there's different bacteria. And so it still doesn't necessarily give you the answer. And I think, Jen, what this really tells us is the disutility of some of our lab tests. And instead of that, we have to rely on the symptoms in the patient to help make the diagnosis. That is exactly right. These UAs can be really, really meaningless in some ways. We still send them for some reason, but we know that they're going to be a mess. And so we, I think we do have to rely on symptoms. Now, let me just tell you what his UA showed. It showed 16 to 30 epithelial cells. So despite the fact that we cathed him to get the urine, it still wasn't a clean specimen. He's got greater than 50 white blood cells per high-powered field, uh, three red blood cells, moderate bacteria. And his labs were not that helpful. His white count was six. His hemoglobin was 12. His electrolytes, including his creatinine, were normal. So that's kind of the labs I think that you were referring to, not that helpful. In terms of the imaging, looking back in his chart, this guy has been getting CT abdomen pelvises very frequently. Despite his young age, he's getting a lot of them, and I can imagine why he's presenting with these types of symptoms over and over again. And despite the fact that that's true, and it was noted, and this is a young male, this physician decided to get a CT again, and it showed the reading said, persistent circumferential mural thickening of the urinary bladder correlate for UTI versus neurogenic bladder, otherwise negative. So what do you think about that CT? It's one of these helpful, not helpful situations. I don't blame the physician for getting a CT because I definitely would have gotten a CT scan. This is a, a guy who's had intra-abdominal surgeries in the past. He has a not intact sensation. He's got diffuse tenderness palpation. He's tachycardic. I think all of that tells me I probably do need to image this guy and get a little bit of a perspective on what's going on there, because I think it would be easy to just jump and say, well, he says it's a UTI. The urine looks like this. Let me give him some antibiotics and be done with it. Get that early closure, wrap the case up and be done with it. And I kind of think it's important, and I'm glad this physician did it, to look a little bit closer and say, well, sure, this could be a UTI, but I got to look in that belly. I got to see maybe there's something else going on. I don't want to... What if he has an abscess? Exactly. Right? What if he's got pylo and he's got an abscess? I mean, there's so many different things at play here. So I think going after the CT is important. And the CT does tell us that those things aren't there. It's not a small bowel obstruction. There is no abscess. It's 
no free fluid. There's not a bleed going on. So I think it gives us a ton of information. Of course, that clinically correlate part is a little bit hard, but we have to clinically correlate here. We have to talk to the patient and say, does this feel like when you have a UTI? Absolutely. So the CT read comes back. So you go back, you reassess your patient, and now he's gotten some pain medication. He's had a little bit of fluids. He's actually eaten a little bit of food. And he says he's feeling actually better. His abdominal pain is gone. So at this point, now that he's like asymptomatic, what do you do? Do you send him home with the urine culture pending? Do you start antibiotics because it still could have been a UTI? Do you admit this person? What do you do? I don't think there's a right answer, Jen. I really don't. I think there's a number of different ways you can go. I think one of the things that I, I would like to do is to talk to this guy's physician and say, you know, you know him better than I do. Is this what his UTIs look like? How would you take care of him in this situation? Because that might help give you a little bit of information. That physician may know this guy very well and know, oh, this is how he always presents when he has a UTI. These often get worse. I would treat him. And I think that can be very helpful. You can look back at old urine cultures and see what the sensitivity is. Is there something that I can give him that's an oral antibiotic that he can go home on? And then I think it's a matter of getting close follow-up. So if you decide, you know, he looks great, he looks well, I think he can go home. I don't think we have to start antibiotics. Let's make sure we have a good follow-up plan in place. So how do you talk to the patient? I'm sending you home, but, and how do you talk to their primary physician and say, I'm sending him home, but, and I think those are the important things to kind of put together here, but I don't think there's a right answer. If you told me that you admitted this guy and put him on IV antibiotics, I'd be like, okay, I'm okay with that. If you said you sent him home with close follow-up, I'm okay with that too. Yeah, I, I like the fact that there, there are a lot of options here and bringing in either the physician uh, that knows the patient best, talking more to the patient, doing a little bit of shared decision-making among those stakeholders, I think is a great idea. And in this particular case, the physician decided to send the patient home with good return precautions and the urine culture pending. The urine culture comes back a couple days later that's, and it says contaminated, multiple organisms, as you referred to earlier, so not that helpful. But the patient was phoned and told to come back if he's having any symptoms. And the follow-up on this case is that the patient comes back, not at the point of the urine culture coming back, but 10 days later, the patient represents with the same symptoms. And this time, the urine looks the same. The provider decides not to CT, since he had just had one, and he gets admitted for IV meropenem based on his past history of ESBL. That's the outcome in this case. Any thoughts? Well, 10 days later, was that linked to that first presentation or not? It's hard to say. If you said it was 12 hours later, sure, that probably was that first presentation. But I think what this gives you, those two things, is these were two reasonable approaches to take yes. care of the patient. And I can't really blame either one of them because I think they were both good approaches. And Jen, I think you know, going back to the first physician sending the patient home is how you have that conversation. And so when I see a patient like this where I'm not sure what's going on, there could be something that's a little bit bad going on, but the presentation is reassuring, I often will sit down and talk to the patient and say, hey, listen, I don't think there's anything serious going on right now. I think it's okay for you to go home, but sometimes we're wrong. We can be wrong and I'm okay with being wrong, but I want you to tell me I'm wrong. So if you're not feeling better in 12 hours or 16 hours or any of these symptoms start and you're worried about it, then you come back and you tell me that I'm wrong and we'll start over again. And I think sometimes that helps patients to understand, yes, I'm sending you home, but I'm not wiping my hands of you and the hospital's not wiping its hands of you. We understand that we could be wrong and we want you to come back and, you know, giving them all of those symptoms to be looking out for. And again, talking to their primary doctor and saying, Everything looks really reassuring. I've given return precautions. I'd love it if he can see you in 24 hours as well. And if that's not possible, it's a Friday, you're not in the office this weekend, 
then I'm just going to tell him to come back and see me in 24 hours just so that we can make sure that he's doing well. The one caveat on that, Jen, is the fact that sometimes patients have a difficulty in getting to the hospital. And so that has to come into play too. If this patient tells you, I came from two hours away or it's really hard for me to get to the hospital, then I might be a little bit more cautious and say, let's watch you overnight and see what happens. Yeah, this is a patient who uses a wheelchair. It's not easy to get around. So I think that that does figure into it in terms of ease of return. Of note in this patient's case, when this patient was admitted, the medicine team had the infectious disease service see him to ask the question whether or not this patient should be on prophylactic antibiotics given the frequency of UTI. And that's probably something we've all thought about when we see patients like this. And just to let you know, the ID service said, no, don't do that. Doing so may create even more antibiotic resistance. And the key to avoiding UTIs in this patient is to do the clean intermittent catheterization in as sterile fashion as possible and to do it very frequently so they don't have urine sitting around in their bladder. So those are really the keys to to avoiding UTIs and not doing prophylactic antibiotics. A little bit of education, a little bit of support for the patient can actually go a really long way here to helping them to get exactly what they need. And sometimes these patients, Janet, and I know that you see this as well in your county hospital, sometimes these patients are homeless and they don't have access to doing this sterile and all of the equipment. And that's something, again, that we can try to help with. We can try to get them those supplies, get them plugged in to get a little bit extra care so that we don't get them into that situation where they can't cath or they're using an old catheter, it's not sterile, and they get an infection. Yeah. So just wrapping up the case, a few other take-home points. Remember that patients who have sensory deficits, like this patient who do these clean intermittent caths, may have atypical presentations of their UTI they may not have the typical stuff. So some other common symptoms besides abdominal pain include things like increased spasticity, which this patient did have, them just describing shivers or chills, and headache could be one of the other presentations, which we see also in patients who have pilo sometimes too. Cloudy urine or foul-smelling urine that the patient reports, often we kind of blow that off, but in some studies, it actually can be pretty indicative of an infection. I found one study, not a great study, but it said that greater than 70% of these patients who self-cath who actually had a UTI reported that symptom of cloudy urine. You know, getting a urine specimen in this case, you have to do it by sterile cath. But even when you do it, as you mentioned before, they can be colonized. Most of them will have bacteriuria at a minimum. And if the patient's asymptomatic in that case, you've gotten a UA for some other reason, don't treat it. Because again, it can just lead to increased resistance if we're just treating them with antibiotics when they don't need it. And then doing a little education, reminding a patient, maybe intermittently saying, hey, you know, how are you doing your catheterizations? Reminding them about the importance of sterility is always worth it. You know, just doing a little reminder can get people to kind of tighten up their routine. Sometimes this is a good opportunity too to ask the nurse, hey, can you do the cath with the patient? Ask them to show you how they do it. And maybe you'll find something. Maybe you'll find that little break in sterility that is causing the problem and you can fix that. And Jan, let's be honest, our nurses are experts here, right? Especially ED nurses putting in Foley catheters. There's nobody better at this procedure uh, except for a urologist, but there's nobody really better. And so why not use that expertise to, to help to train the patient even a little bit better than they have been trained? Absolutely. Thank you, nurses, for all that you do. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Jan, that's a great case. I think this is one of these conundrums that we get into quite often in the emergency department. Good information on how to take care of those patients. And let's go from there into what we have for the month. There is some fantastic stuff as always, but a couple of things that I really love this month, Jan. One was the vertigo cases that Evie Marcolini and Mike Weinstock talked about. I find vertigo to be very difficult, very challenging to make sure this isn't something really bad. So I love going through those cases. And then I enjoyed the piece that I got to do with Jacob Avila on ultrasound and cardiac arrest, 
how we should be using it, and all of the different ways that it can help us in managing those patients. Yeah, I enjoyed those as well. My highlights this month were the piece that Eileen Claudius did on kids and marijuana intoxication. Very interesting. And I also found the rural medicine piece on avalanche victims completely fascinating. I did not know anything about that. So it was just really a walk through a land that I am not familiar with. <laughs> You're not seeing a lot of avalanche victims in LA? You know, not so much. You know, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. Not, not on my list of things that I feel comfortable with. If that was a call <laughs> that I was getting from my EMS, I'd be like, wait a second, I think you're calling the wrong place. Yeah. Do you have uh, the right number? We don't get number? a lot of avalanches in Jersey. <laughs> not, not the natural disasters we deal with on a frequent basis, but very apropos for December. So I'm glad that we have that piece, especially for a lot of our folks who are not working in LA and not working in New Jersey. And Jen, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the MRAP One Conference This is MRAP making its glorious return to a live conference April 19th to the 21st in LA. It's going to be fantastic. We've got a pre-con day. We've got a couple of days of short lectures, and these are not going to be your usual lectures. It's going to be very different than what you typically see at conferences. It's going to be amazing. We're going to have a great time, and we can't wait to see all of you in person. So go over there, sign up for the conference, and if you're not sure if you're ready to travel yet, that's okay. We have a live stream option as well. But we, of course, would love to see you in person. Jen, we got some great stuff coming up. I can't wait to get into the month. And of course, I can't wait to see you on the other side for the mailbag, for the mega summary. It's time to launch into December. Absolutely. And happy 2021 end of year to everyone. Space and time are intertwined. We cannot look out into space without looking back into time. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all and welcome back to Rural Medicine. This month I am joined once again by my former colleague Eric Cantin, who is now a family physician and emergency physician in Iceland. So welcome back Eric and let's hear your case. I was hanging out before my evening shift and this was in the winter. Uh, my wife was also an ER physician or was, was working uh, during that day and she told me that they just received a dispatch from the helicopter service that they were on the way for an avalanche victim. Information were coming bits by bits and it seemed that the victim uh, seemed to have been triggered a, a small avalanche and was dragged down a small gully and then he slid down and he was stopped at this bottom of this, uh, this place and there was also a waterfall close to it. The victim was a few kilometers away from the road. The SAR teams were fast to arrive with their snowmobiles, but this situation proved to be much more challenging than they anticipated. The patient was was dragged in this small gully, and because of the the avalanche beacon waves were reflecting on the rocks and walls, they were receiving conflictual signals, and it was really hard to locate the exact location of the victim. But after a while, someone probed the victim, and uh, the victim was under three meters of snow. At that point, the doctor from the helicopter services, uh, my good friend and colleague Berger, asked the pilot to be uh, winched down because he felt it would make the greatest difference on the ground. So the victim was partially extricated. And it was noticed to be pulselessness. Uh, he seemed to have his airway open. But remember that he, the victim was close to a waterfall and there was just soaked all wet. It took a while to finally uh, dig the victim out completely uh, because he was heads up, feet down, and his keys were stuck in the snow and they had to dig him out completely. There was some wind, and as they were digging, just more slush came. The patient was finally extricated. They had to move him down about 10 meters down the slope uh, to start CPR because the extrication site was too tricky for interventions. 
and to add to the challenge, they were concerned that the vibration from the helicopter would trigger another avalanche, so they had to carry him down 50 meters before to be winched by the helicopter. Once the patient was in the helicopter, the patient was still in the systole. He was set up on a portable device for external cardiac compression, the Lucas. He was intubated in the helicopter, and they notified us that they were on the way. In the ER, since we were dispatched before, we were ready. We had called the ECMO team to give them the heads up and the resident was in contact with them. We were two ER consultants, we had two really good ER residents, everyone had their roles. On arrival, the patient was in a systole. He was cold to touch, really wet. There was no signs of trauma otherwise. The EFAS was negative. His official temperature was seeing 23 degrees, which is 73 degrees Fahrenheit and the rectal probe was 30 degrees Celsius, uh, 86 degrees Fahrenheit. So at that point, it's been now two hours from the time we received a dispatch from the EMS service, and the patient stayed most of it in the, uh, under the avalanche with possible drowning. The Venus guy showed a pH of 6.6, .6, a potassium of 17, glucose of 2. That's 36 in milligrams per deciliter. Bicarbonates of 4, a lactate of 23. He was getting the treatment for the hyperkalemia, calcium gluconate, insulin, dextrose, some fluid, adrenaline, and every pulse check, he was in a systole, no cardiac activity on the ultrasound, and the art line just showed a flat line. At this point, Vanessa, I was wondering, what would you do? Would you stop? Because it's an avalanche victim, anything else you would do differently? Because it's a young victim, anything else? Well, I mean, there's always that thing ringing in my head where you can't be cold and dead until you're warm and dead, so there is that. I mean, the time is concerning, even if his airway's open, the amount of time that he's been down. Even if you were able to get ROSC, I'd be concerned about his neurologic outcome. I would definitely be calling a friend. It sounds like you had friends already with you in the ER, but I would definitely be calling either an ICU specialist or intensivist in some category. And I would be talking to the rest of my team as well and making sure that there's nothing that we've forgotten. Before we get the answer, let's just go and get some background. When people think of avalanches, of course, they think about ski resorts, and uh, they're right. But avalanches can happen in many places, such as roads and villages. For, for people who are caught in an avalanche, some studies from Canada that says that there's a 77% survival rate at 10 minutes, but this goes down to 7% at 35 minutes. So when it comes to resuscitation, the avalanche victim, there are two big categories of patients. The first group of patients are those that will die in the first 35 minutes from asphyxia or major trauma. And at that point, it's really a race against the clock to find these victims and extract them. There have been no reported survival of someone who's been buried more than 35 minutes with a packed airway. And like I said earlier, in the epidemiologic studies, there's a huge drop of mortality in the first half hour. The second group of patients are those with hypothermia. So these will be the one would have an airway that is intact, that is open, that have had some air pockets, and then they will kind of like cool down slowly until they have a cardiac arrest. We know from case studies that the rate of cooling, that maximum rate of cooling is about nine degrees, nine to 10 degrees, degrees Celsius per hour. So in 35 minutes, someone can cool down to a critical point and then they can have a cardiac arrest. And these patients will behave much more differently because a patient in cardiac arrest with severe hypothermia or cardiac instability is a candidate for ECMO. And these are associated with really good outcome when they're put on the machine. Okay, so a quick recap here, the sort of two types of patients. We've got those who are either victims of asphyxia or a massive trauma, so we're really racing against the clock to find them and get them out. 
And then we're looking at the other group, which are really the hypothermic ones who are much likely to be more salvageable depending on the time that they've been under and because ECMO and other options might be more viable in these folks. Now, before we move on to sort of the management of these patients, we have to keep a few things in mind. And those are the, some of the prognostic factors, which can really help us make a decision about which sort of treatment algorithm we are going to follow. So why don't you go over those for us, Eric? The main decisions of prognostic factors in avalanche victim is the duration of the burial, the initial temperature when we get the victim, is the airway open or not? Like, is it packed with snow? Does, they have, like, does the victim have an uh, airway pocket? And also, for the hospital, it's going to be the potassium level. And this is why I really like the algorithm from the European Resuscitation Committee, because they, they factor all of this and they put this into a nice and easy uh, algorithm for us. So why don't we go over it? The first step of this algorithm is just to assess if there's obvious lethal injury or if the whole body is frozen. That would be uh, an indication to stop CPR. The next would be then the duration of the burial. If, the, if it's been less than 60 minutes and the core temperature is more than 30 degrees, 86 Fahrenheit, then they recommend just to do the standard ALS because this patient probably died of something else, not of hypothermia. They might have died of the trauma or the asphyxia. But if it's been more than 60 minutes and the core temperature is less than 30 degrees, now they say to look for signs of life and they recommend to check for a pulse or if the patient breathes for about a minute. If there are signs of life, then we have a patient with severe hypothermia who's alive and then we need to remarm this patient. And, and the indications for going into ECMO would be if the, there's any cardiac instability or if the temperature is less than 28 degrees. If these two things are there, we should go into ECMO. If there are no signs of life, then we should start CPR. And this is where also where the rhythm helps us as a prognostic factor. If it's a PA, a VFib, a VTAC, they say that we should continue CPR and bring the patient to a, a, an ECMO facility if available. If the patient is in a systole, then the prognosis is dark, and now we have to check if the airway is open or was packed with snow. If the airway was packed with snow, and now it's been 60 minutes that the patient was under the avalanche, they recommend stopping CPR, because at this point the prognosis is extremely bad. But if it was in a systole and the airway was open, like our patient, now we have to check the potassium level. I just need to drop in here and say, since the recording of this story, the European Resuscitation Council has published new guidelines on the management of avalanche victims. And now, instead of the potassium only, they use the HOPE score for prognostication. And we are going to clarify more about that HOPE score later on in the show. So, Vanessa, I was thinking, why don't we just go over this algorithm together? Okay, that sounds good. So if we go back over the case, so I guess the first step, the patient didn't have any obvious lethal injuries from what your descriptions were. And the duration of their burial in the avalanche was more than 60 minutes. And they had no signs of life. CPR had been started, and the rhythm had showed asystole. They had a patent airway, but there was likely some possible drowning component here because of this waterfall that was so close to them, because you mentioned that the patient was soaking wet, which isn't usual necessarily in an avalanche when it should be cold snow. But their potassium was 17. So it seems like this algorithm would lead us to the consideration of stopping CPR. Yes, exactly. This is what we did at the end. We felt like we gave the best treatment for this patient, we treat it as, as hyperkalemia because he was young, because it was an avalanche victim. We decided to give him another round of CPR and, and adrenaline. But at the end, we know that a potassium like this, there's been no 
reported case in the literature that someone survived an avalanche uh, with a potassium more than eight and with a potassium of 17, that was really, really bad prognosis for him. Yeah, this is a really sad outcome for this case, but I think it points out a really interesting learning opportunity because of these different branch points on the algorithm that you mentioned, you know, whether it's been how long they've been under the avalanche, their temperature and the potassium. These are all good ways for us to sort of check in with ourselves and say, okay, should we be considering to stop CPR now? Should we keep going now? Those are great tips. Now, anything different in terms of medications or defibrillation or airway management when you're dealing with an avalanche victim? The challenge with avalanches is that are we dealing with an hypothermia patient? Are we dealing with an asphyxia patient? Are we dealing with a trauma patient? Okay, so this is where it becomes more subtle. So if we think that someone died of hypoxia or asphyxia, then we would just do the standard ACLS algorithm. But when it becomes a bit more specific, if, it's a, if we think that the patient is having a cardiac arrest from the hypothermia in the avalanche. So a couple of differences. For the CPR, they recommend checking a pulse and, and breathing for up to a minute, which is different than you, the, the 10 second recommendation that we usually do. Also regarding CPR, this should be started as early as possible. They also recommend that we can use mechanical chest compression to free some hands. And also, in, I think in the pre-hospital, it's, it's a really wise use. And also they talk about something called intermittent resuscitation. So that means in cases of confirmed or suspected severe hypothermia, it is acceptable to interrupt CPR for less than five minutes to do something else. So let's say we have to extricate the patient, we have to move the patient, we have to winch them with the helicopter. We shouldn't be hands off for more than five minutes and then we should resume the CPR for more than five minutes. In terms of the airway management, business as usual. Regarding defibrillation, uh, let's just uh, agree that there's some disagreement between the European societies and the American. Some say that we should defibrillate every two minutes like usual, and some say that we should do about three shocks until the, there's a temperature of 30 degrees, and then we should resume the defibrillation as, as normal. The rationale is that a really cold art is refractory to shock and severe hypothermia, and also the evidence is limited. So what I would do in these cases, I would just limit myself to three shock until we reach a 30 degrees Celsius. Because anyway, we have so many other things to do at that point, and I think we should really focus on ruling out any other causes and rewarming the patient. Same thing with adrenaline. There's a lot of disagreement between the, the two large societies. Uh, the European says not to give any adrenaline until the patient is at 30 degrees. The American says a uh, max of three doses until we've reached uh, 30 degrees. So there's limited evidence. At that point, I would probably just throw one or two doses and then kind of like try to forget about the adrenaline until we reach 30 degrees. So on the field, the biggest priority is just to avoid further cooling. And the, one of the best way we have for this is what we call the burrito wrap, which is basically wrapping the patient in multiple layers. So starting with the heat pads close to the patient, uh, and then you put some sort of like foil as a vapor barrier, you put some blanket, and then you finish the large wrap with like a big tarp. And usually the organized SAR teams, they usually have this equipment with them on a rescue. Talking about that, Mel and Dr. Doug Brown covered hypothermia in January 2014 on MRAP, and you should really go back and listen to that for further discussion of this because it's very useful and you know, very um, comprehensive. The highlights from that really are you know, use warm IV fluids when you can have access to them, keep the patient in a warm area because you obviously, as you said, want to make sure that they don't get even more cold. 
Active external rewarming is when you use a warm blanket or forced heat over the patient. And then the active internal rewarming is things like thoracic lavage and peritoneal lavage, which are obviously not something you're going to be doing on the side of a mountain. But um, when you get into the emergency department, you might have these as options. Eric, you mentioned a few times ECMO, and not all of us out here have access to ECMO, but why don't you go over some of the uses for ECMO in these patients? So ECMO treatment is definitely associated with a good prognosis and severe hypothermia cases. And there's some very interesting uh, case series of patients being very, very cold, down to 14 degrees Celsius surviving after ECMO. For avalanche victims, though, the data, I would say, are not as optimistic. It's probably because it's like you, sometimes it's a mix of like drowning, asphyxia, and trauma, and not only like a pure hypothermia cases. And we have studies from Japan and Australia showing that the survival is limited in patients in cardiac arrest going into ECMO. If you have any doubt, of course, you should always discuss with your local ECMO team or your local ER. And it's good to have this discussion with the cardiothoracic uh, surgeon. The indication for ECMO in avalanche patients is you really to find the smaller group of patients that we rule out the asphyxia, the trauma, and then that we're pretty confident that they die of a cardiac arrest because they've been cooling down slowly. Okay, so now we're going to look at the serum potassium levels. And it's in these avalanche patients where potassium really becomes a very important marker. Obviously, it's an important marker in lots of patients, but this can be one of those critical decision points. So we have some studies supporting that the highest admission serum potassium of an avalanche victim was 6.4, and that a cutoff under 7 millimoles per liter might be actually a good prognostic factor. So that is not a very high potassium level for someone who obviously survived the emergency department resuscitation and ended up being admitted. All in all, the higher the potassium, the worse the prognosis, which isn't surprising because it really kind of shows how dead the victim is. There's also been no shown survival for avalanche victims in which their first potassium level was above 8, including patients who received ECMO. And for true hypothermia, that line is now drawn at 12 millimoles per liter. But for the avalanche, 8 is still one place where you can consider stopping because there are so many other factors going on. This, they, they had the hypothermia, but they've also got the possibility of the trauma and the asphyxia. Like I mentioned earlier, the European Resuscitation Council now suggests that we use the HOPE score for prognostication in avalanche victims, instead of potassium only. So now, Eric, why don't you talk to us a little bit more about that? What they realize with time is that the potassium alone is not as reliable as previously thought. A group of researchers then tried to identify who would survive ECMO and hypothermia, and they came up with the HOPE score, or the Hypothermia Outcome Prediction After ECLS. They have a website where you can calculate it. You need internet access, of course, and we'll put the link in the show notes. It is a composite score where you enter the age, the gender, was there any asphyxia or not, the CPR duration, the serum potassium, and the initial temperature. Once you enter the patient's data, it gives you a percentage of survival. A score of five, for example, means that there's a 5% survival chance. And they drew the line at 10%. More than 10%, it's a go for ECMO. Less than 10%, they recommend not to go for ECMO in these hypothermic patients. As a side note, the score is less reliable in children, as some kids have survived with a score less than 10%. And they also recommend to take this with a grain of salt in avalanches since it hasn't been studied well. So for avalanche victims, even though they recommend using the score, it is not 100% proven. And what I would recommend is just to discuss with your regional ECMO team. My opinion is that potassium still has some role since not everyone knows about the HOPE score and we actually don't have much data in avalanche victims. Second, if you don't have access to internet, potassium only can be used as a predictor. And the ERC 
now recommends a potassium level of 7 as a cutoff to consider stopping CPR. I would like to close by saluting the SARS team who I think play an immense role in avalanche cases. As we said, we're racing against time and big, organized, well-trained SARS teams, they can make a difference. I couldn't agree more. We often talk about how first responders have to secure the scene before they put themselves at risk to go and get the patient. But it's really hard to secure the scene when you're on the side of a mountain and there are potentially other avalanches that could come and get you as well. So definitely hats off to all of those search and rescue volunteers and employees. They do an amazing job. So how about you give us a little quick summary of the key points here? So keep in mind that the three main causes of death and avalanche is hypoxia, trauma, and hypothermia. We're really running against the clock. We really want to be quick on finding the patient who's under the avalanche, assessing and removing any snow, if they have any snow in their airway. As the doctor who's going to receive the patient in the ER, what we want to know is the duration of the burial. We want to know the temperature. Was the airway open? Is there a pulse? And then we want to get like a, a potassium level just to stratify this patient. And where we can really make a difference is really to find these patients who had their airway open that did not die of asphyxia or trauma and that they went into cardiac arrest for hypothermia and then we can salvage them with ECMO. Algorithm as well, we're going to include a link to that in the show notes. So if you're working in a place that's avalanche prone or might be a referral center, then it'd be good to have this available. Thank you so much for all your work on this and I look forward to chatting to you again soon. Yes, well, it was my pleasure. Bye. One of the biggest changes in my cardiac arrest management from when I trained to now is the addition of ultrasound. It's at the core of my practice, but one of the things I haven't really done is question if it should be. So I'm here with Jacob Avila from Core Ultrasound to answer that very question. And Jacob, let's cut to the chase. Should it be? Now, I'm not dogmatic about a lot of things, but I will tell you that I'm, I'm using ultrasound almost invariably in all of my cardiac arrest patients. I'm not using it the same with every single case because every single case is different, but to some degree, to some capacity, I am invariably going to be using it. Let's start with the applications then, because like you said, there are different ways to use ultrasound in cardiac arrest. Where should we be considering using ultrasound if we're not doing it already? I think about this basically in three different categories, procedural ultrasound, identifying reversible causes, and to help during pulse checks. Reversible causes. Now let's talk about reversible causes first. And when we're thinking about this, when, when I learned this, I learned about the H's and the T's, right? For reversible causes of arrest. It's not a great mnemonic because I, I don't know what the H's and T's are off the top of my head. I always have to look it up, right? Now, there are a few, five, that I think that you can use ultrasound for. So there are one H and four T's that you can look at. So the four T's are going to be tamponade, tension pneumothorax, and thrombosis. And the one H is hypovolemia. With regards to tamponade, we actually talked about it in the May 2021 MRAP episode. So if you really want like a more in-depth kind of view on that, I would definitely check that out. But suffice it to say that if I have a patient that's arresting and I see a moderate to large effusion, that patient is going to get a pericardiocentesis because it's very likely that that's what's the cause of it, or at least a component of it. 
And I might not have time during the arrest, during the resuscitation, to be able to really tell if there is right ventricular diastolic collapse, to look for pulses paradoxes or variations in the inflow velocity. So I'm basically just looking for the presence of an effusion. And then if I see an effusion also, I'm going to also look at the aorta at the same time because a lot of times when I'm seeing an effusion that is the cause of an arrest, it's due to a dissection, an aortic dissection that has gone all the way back down to the root and into that pericardial sac. The next T is talking about a tension pneumothorax. The pneumothorax, the way you visualize that on ultrasound is you're basically looking for the presence or absence of lung sliding. Now that is in a non-arresting patient. When you have an arresting patient, they're, they're typically not breathing, right? So it's, it's hard to tell if that lung is sliding well or not. And, and sure, like ideally you have the patient, they're intubated, you're doing bag valve mask ventilation and you're able to see sliding that way. But I will tell you that in an arresting patient, sometimes it's difficult to actually see if they're sliding or not. So with this, I don't look necessarily for sliding. What I'm gonna do is I'm actually looking for the presence or absence of B lines. So B lines themselves come from the visceral pleura. The visceral pleura is the lung itself. The parietal pleura is basically the underside of the ribs. If you're able to see B lines, that means that the visceral pleura is touching the parietal pleura. All that to say, if I see B lines in the lungs, it means that the patient does not have a significant pneumothorax. So that's kind of how I look for that. The next T is thrombosis. And there's two different thromboses that you can look for. You can look for a myocardial infarction thrombosis, or you can look for a pulmonary embolism thrombosis. Now, with a myocardial infarction thrombosis, of course, we're normally diagnosing these things based off of an EKG, but I don't know, Swami, how often are you able to get a good quality EKG in the middle of an arrest? Like how often are you able to get those? You really can't. It just can't be done. Yeah, because I mean, the, the leads are all in the way of the chest compressions themselves. So that's where I think ultrasound is very useful. You can look for those regional wall motion abnormalities on your ultrasound. I, I typically, if I'm going to be doing an ultrasound during compressions, I'm going to go straight for an apical four chamber view, which is a really good view of the heart in general. And it's a really good view to look specifically for regional wall motion abnormalities. One thing we should be quite clear about is that if the patient is in arrest, true arrest, there's no wall motion abnormality because there's no wall motion at all. We're really talking about the patient who is just post-arrest or peri-arrest. The other way that you can use ultrasound for the T thrombosis part of the H's and T's is looking for a PE. Now, this one can be a little bit tricky. In the May 2020 episode of MRAP, we talked about how RV strain and arrest isn't necessarily always from a PE because sometimes you can actually have RV dilation or right side dilation just in an arrest because you're not actually pushing blood through the heart effectively. So it's going to back up and pull in the right side of the heart. I will say if I have a peri-arrest patient, so someone who is maybe about to code or has some pretty bad hypotension, I see right ventricular enlargement then while they still have some kind of a cardiac output. I'm much more likely to think that that patient has a pulmonary embolism rather than the person who comes in as a arrest in the field, they arrive, they've maybe been getting compressions for 20 minutes, 
and I see RV dilation at that point. In that situation, I am much less likely to think that the PE is a cause of that patient's arrest. There's a couple of caveats to that. If I see a clot in transit, so that's actually seeing like a little clot booger in the right side of the heart, even if I didn't have the echo before they arrested, I'm much more likely to consider that right heart strain as being caused by a PE if I can actually see the clot in there. And the other thing is if I'm kind of borderline, like I'm not 100% sure if it's chronic, if it's acute, or if it's due to just the arrest itself, I'm actually going to be looking for a DVT in the lower extremity. So that's something you can easily do while compressions are taking place. For the H, that one's one that I don't use all that much, but it still can be useful. And the way that you diagnose hypovolemia with your ultrasound during an arrest is to look for a very small left ventricle, so an underfilled left ventricle, and then look for a very tiny IVC. So one that is very compressed and collapsing a bunch, like 100% with uh, ventilations. In that case, I'm thinking maybe hypovolemia and fluids might be something that can help your patient. The last thing to talk about is trauma. Now, I'm definitely not talking about external trauma. I'm talking about internal trauma. And I'm talking about the focus assessment of sonography and trauma or the FAST examination. Oftentimes, when we get our patients from the field, we're going to know if there's a history of trauma, but sometimes not. They might just be found down and we don't really know. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about with the FAST exam is, is trauma is in the name, right? There's a FAST exam. It stands for Focus Assessment of Sonography and Trauma. But I use the FAST exam in non-trauma situations fairly frequently. One of the more common times that I'll use this is actually looking for a ruptured ectopic. They'll have a positive FAST. A ruptured bowel, they'll also have a positive FAST. And then looking for a ruptured AAA or abdominal aortic aneurysm that can also cause your patient to have a positive FAST exam. It's a good review of where to use it. And there's some important things to really stress in there. Thrombosis, the MI is one of the hardest things to determine if that's what caused your cardiac arrest because you don't have cardiac activity. You don't have electrical activity. It's hard to know that was an MI. And what we're talking about with ultrasound is sometimes you have some residual cardiac activity that maybe you don't know is there. And when you look with the ultrasound, you can see it and you can see those regional wall motion abnormalities or right as you're regaining return to spontaneous circulation. There's a lot of stuff going on. The EKG might get lost, but applying your ultrasound again can be really helpful in helping to make that diagnosis of a myocardial infarction. But that is by far, I think, one of the trickiest things to figure out. So ultrasound clearly plays a role in helping us to diagnose what was the cause of that cardiac arrest, something that back when I trained was kind of a guessing game. Do you think it could be a pneumothorax? I don't know. Let's decompress the lung. Do you think it could be an MI? No, I don't know. Maybe we should give lytics. And that's a lot of what we used to do. And my residents often are like, how is it that you did so many pericardiocentesis as a resident? I'm like, every cardiac arrest got one because we couldn't look with ultrasound to see if they had fluid. So they all got a needle in the chest to try and drain fluid away. Now, some of those were successful, whether it was successfully placed into the left ventricle and drawing out blood or successfully placed into the pericardial sac and drawing out blood. Who knows? But before we had ultrasound, before we were using it here, we really didn't have an idea of that. Now we can be a little bit more guided and directed, which brings us from diagnosis to some of the other areas. Procedural guidance. The next one that I like to think about is procedural guidance. In a code, it can be a little stressful. There's movement, but I really like getting a central line or a HD catheter, something big into one of the femoral veins. 
And you definitely can do this under landmark guidance for sure, but you're much more accurate when you use your ultrasound. I really like getting arterial access during my codes as well because it's it's super helpful to figure out if the patient has a blood pressure that is perfusable or not. I'm going to talk about it here in just a little bit, but we do notoriously bad at determining if the patient actually has a pulse or not. And the last procedure that I like to do under ultrasound guidance is that actual pericardiocentesis. Now you can definitely do these blind, but I still would much rather do these using the ultrasound guidance because you're much less likely to cause damage to the liver, cause neatrogenic pneumothorax, if you can actually visualize that needle going right into the pericardial sac. We can clearly see where ultrasound can be useful for identifying underlying causes and for procedures. And additionally, Jacob will use it during rhythm checks to see if a new complication has developed. For instance, the patient may not have had a pneumothorax, but your compressions break a rib and drop a lung, and it's good to know that it's there and treat it because it might be hampering your ability to get a return of spontaneous circulation. A key part of our standard rhythm checks is to check for a pulse, basically looking to see if the patient has adequate cardiac activity to create peripheral perfusion. But we're notoriously bad at feeling pulses. There are plenty of studies out there that talk about this, but I'm just going to talk about one that I think was brilliant. It's from 1996. It's in resuscitation. And they took 207 EMTs to evaluate 16 patients on bypass. So that's a great gold standard. They either have a pulse or they don't based off of if they're on bypass or not. Now, in that patient population, 10% of the time, the providers thought there was a pulse when there wasn't. 45% of the time, they thought there wasn't a pulse when there actually was a pulse. The average time it took to make those wrong decisions was 24 seconds, which is crazy. And the amount of people that produce the correct answer within the 10 seconds, which is you know our pulse check time, is 17%. Only 17% of people got it right within that 10-second window. Jacob, if our fingers are not that good, and we have discussed this before, and we're going to agree that they are not good, how are you using ultrasound in replacement of that? What I'm doing is I'm looking for organized cardiac activity. Now, I can't give you like an exact number of an ejection fraction that I'm looking for, but I want to see that heart beat enough for me to think that the blood is able to move out of the heart and get at least to the brain. Now, I I have no evidence whatsoever, but while I think about this, if the patient has an EF of 15 to 20% or higher, that's a EF that I feel comfortable that the average person is going to have enough blood flow to perfuse the brain, which that's the, the most important one in arrest, right? Is to perfuse the brain. If you ever are not sure, so you see some kind of an ejection fraction, it looks some kind of organized, but you're not 100% sure if that's perfusible or not, that is a very good example of why an arterial line is so important because that will help in those gray areas. If you have a map above 45-ish, even if you don't feel a pulse, if you see an organized cardiac rhythm, it's pushing some blood forward and you have a map above 45, that's probably enough to perfuse all of the key organs. And then in addition to that, you can take that ultrasound probe and put it on the femoral vessel or on the carotid artery and look for flow. Yeah, absolutely. You totally can. Now, this is something that I've thought about a lot and I'd only recently have looked up some of the literature for it. And it's not great, the literature for it, but it is available. So what you do is you basically place your linear transducer over the carotid artery 
look for the presence or absence of compressibility. So if the patient has a blood pressure, the artery should not be compressible itself. And then you can also just look for pulsatility. That's basically what we're seeing with a pulse is we're seeing, we're feeling pulsatility of that carotid artery. And then you can look at it with ultrasound. You can see that artery kind of like bouncing a little bit. If you see that the patient has a pulse, there's a little bit less evidence for the femoral artery, but you can also look at the femoral artery that way. Here's the problem that I see, Jacob. We can agree that ultrasound is good for figuring out what could be causing the arrest. We can use it in replacement of our fingers. We can look for organized cardiac activity, but we also have a host of recent studies showing that when you use ultrasound intra-arrest, the rhythm checks are longer than rhythm checks without ultrasound. And we want to have that compression fraction as high as possible. So Jacob, say it ain't so. Say it ain't so that ultrasound prolongs our rhythm checks. Uh, well, it is so, Swami. But it's not due to the ultrasound itself. It's the operators who are prolonging the pulse checks. So there are two studies that were published in 2017, and both of them state that the ultrasound prolongs pulse checks. One of them had pulse check average duration of 21 seconds versus 13 seconds with non-ultrasound. And then another one had ultrasound pulse checks at 19.3 seconds with non-ultrasound being 14.2 seconds. But you know what, Swami? It's not the ultrasound's fault. These were, and I mean this with all due respect, poorly run codes. 10 seconds are 10 seconds. I mean, in these studies, even the non-ultrasound pulse checks were longer than the 10 seconds. With the ultrasound, if you're using that the cardiac ultrasound during your pulse check, you have to remember that 10 seconds is 10 seconds. If you can't get a good view within that 10 seconds window, you should consider that as the same as you not feeling a pulse within those 10 seconds. That right there is the key point and it bears repeating. If within 10 seconds, you can't find cardiac activity, you can't get a good view of the heart, it doesn't mean to try it longer or look harder. It should be the equivalent of, I don't feel a pulse, let's resume compressions. What I usually do is I just have the provider, somebody else, maybe the person who's taking track of the time, just count down from 10. When they get to two seconds, I take the transducer off. You should always use ultrasound to help you. And if at any point it's hindering you, you shouldn't use that ultrasound for that thing. That last thing you said, I think is really important. It's not the ultrasound that's flawed. It's the people who are applying the ultrasound in a flawed manner and running that code in a flawed manner. And so what we want to do, if you're going to use ultrasound, is give tools to smooth that arrest with ultrasound so that we don't get delays. And you've got two tips to do this. Right. Tip one. So the first tip that I have is how to actually approach the pull check, the ultrasound pull check. 15 seconds before the pulse check, I'm doing two things. I'm charging the defibrillator and then I'm getting the ultrasound machine ready at the same time. What I'll do is I'll put the phased array transducer in whichever hand is closest to the patient. So it might be my left hand, it might be my right hand. I will put a glob of gel on the probe and then I put a rag on my opposite hand. When the pulse check happens, I am doing an aggressive sub xiphoid view. Like my elbow is like up in the air. I basically, it looks like I'm trying to like, you know, punch the patient right in the solar plexus. Like I'm, I'm not punching them full disclosure, but I'm basically like pushing down very hard with my elbow up to apply pressure because I want to get that view as fast as possible. Most of the time when you're doing this on awake patients, the sub view is prohibitive because it's can be a little uncomfortable because you actually have to get 
the transducer underneath the xiphoid process. In an arresting patient, you just need to get that view as fast as possible. So I'm, I push down pretty hard to start. I push up towards the xiphoid and I have my timekeeper count down from 10 to zero. Then when they're at two seconds, I take the transducer off, irrespective of if I found a window or not, I use the rag in my opposite hand to wipe the gel off and then we resume compressions. So that's the logistics of it, right? Not just the, I'm going to do ultrasound, but how to do it starting before you're doing that pause, getting ready, applying immediately. And then there's a 10 second window and you offload the counting as well as the person telling you it's time to take that ultrasound probe off so that you're not like, oh, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I just need one more second. That doesn't fly. You get that eight or 10 seconds, as you said, and then it's over. You're back to compressions and then you're gonna have to wait for the next cycle to take another look with your ultrasound. That's tactic number one. What's tactic number two? Tip two. So it is learning how to separate obtaining images from interpreting those images. Because that's something that cognitively can be hard to do at the same time, especially if you're not as experienced. So a couple of tips. If you are doing your ultrasound, you're doing your pulse check, you place the transducer in the subxiphoid area and you immediately hit the record button and get your best cardiac view. You wipe the gel off, you resume the compressions. During the two minutes of compressions, then you can interpret your image and try and figure out what to do with that image. So that's something that I like because it takes the two things, separates them out and makes it a lot more simple. Another way that you can do this is with something that's called the CASA protocol that Arun Nagdev's group published out uh, in Highland. And what they do is they sequentially look for certain things. So in their first pulse check, they will just, their job is just to see, is there a pericardial effusion or not? That's the only thing they're looking for. Then wipe the gel off, resume compressions. Second pulse check, the only thing they're doing is looking for right heart strength. Then take the probe off, wipe the gel off. Then in the third pulse check, that's when they're looking for cardiac motion. So they're just sequentially looking for just one thing. And I like that because it can be a little confusing within that 10 second window to say, is there a pericardial effusion? No, great. Is there right heart strain? No, great. Doing all that within 10 seconds can be a little bit tricky and this kind of separates that out. There was in fact one study that showed that there was a decrease in the pulse check time from before they started teaching the CASA protocol to after they started doing the CASA protocol. So there's some real world examples showing that this can actually lower the pulse check time. What other tips do you have for using ultrasound and cardiac arrest? One of the big ones is using ultrasound for prognostication. Now this prognostication stuff is kind of similar to how I changed kind of my mind about right heart strain in arrest. I used to be like right heart strain, it's always a PE, always push thrombolytics. I used to think that if I saw cardiac standstill, the patient was like going to die. And if I didn't see cardiac standstill, they had a chance. It turns out that while there is evidence that the patient with cardiac standstill has a lower likelihood of survival, that, sur that chance is not like zero. So there was a systematic review that was published in 2012 that found that 2.4% of patients without wall motion at all, so cardiac standstill, actually achieved ROSC. If you're looking at it from a purely numbers point of view, 2.4% is, is low, right? But 2.4% is not zero. Like I would feel awful if I knew that I called a code based off of just cardiac standstill if they had a 2.4 chance of survival, if I just did a few more rounds of CPR. And this is something that 
is a paradigm shift for me. Now, I will say, just like any other ultrasound application, I'm never using the ultrasound in isolation. So let's say I have the exact same echo showing standstill, but one patient is a 21-year-old female that had excellent bystander CPR and has only been down for five minutes. And on the other side, I have the same echo, but I have a 98-year-old male that has COPD, he's got a AAA, he's a smoker, he's got cancer, and he was an unwitnessed arrest. He's had CPR for 45 minutes. I'm definitely going to approach those ultrasounds with the data around a little bit different. The younger patient that has a higher chance, irrespective of that, of that ultrasound, I am going to definitely go more with that resuscitation based off of the fact that they have low risk factors and they have a high chance of survival compared to the other individual who has that same cardiac standstill, but has a low chance of survival and low chance of survival with good neurologic outcome. Additionally, just talking about standstill in general, there actually isn't perfect agreement on what standstill is and what isn't. Emergency physicians don't agree. There was a, a study in annals in 2018 that found that the agreement between standstill versus no standstill of EM physician was only moderate. It had a coefficient of 0.47. And it's for this reason, I think, that the 2020 AHA guidelines recommend against using ultrasound for prognostication. Summary. Jacob, let's try to bring this all together because there's a lot of information here on why we should be using ultrasound more liberally in our cardiac arrest patients. And I think you would argue every cardiac arrest patient should be getting ultrasound applied to them. And it's a matter of where is going to be the most beneficial for that patient. Starting with your diagnosis, instead of going through those H's and T's just as a cerebral exercise, we can use the ultrasound to try and find these things. Hypovolemia, tamponade, tension pneumothorax, MI or PE, and then that internal trauma, things like ectopic or AAA. We can use it for procedural guidance, for our central lines, for our arterial lines, obviously for the tamponade if we need to relieve that with a needle decompression. And there's a lot of focus on rhythm checks as well in our use of ultrasound. How we apply it, so initially how we can use it for diagnosis, how we can use it to look for things like rhythms that we're not seeing on the monitor but are actually present, cardiac contractility that's actually present, using it as a replacement for our fingers, which we know are not very good at checking pulses, and we can use it both for looking for cardiac contractility as well as looking at the carotid for flow to see that there actually is a perfusing rhythm there and perfusing blood pressure even though our fingers can't palpate it. So a lot of areas that we can use ultrasound, and, and what this really speaks to, of course, is becoming better and better at using ultrasound. And the better you get at it, the easier you can apply it here, the shorter your rhythm checks will be so you're not giving these patients long, low flow times. A lot of information here, Jacob, but I'm really happy to go through all of this with you so that we can apply this in our patients with cardiac arrest and provide better care. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. And thanks so much for having me. I'm speaking today with Michelle Callahan. She is an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Maryland Department of Emergency Medicine. And the topic today is one that I feel like is so important and yet hardly ever really talked about, whether that's in residency conference or on programs like this. And that is the very important subject of treating victims of sexual assault. And Dr. Callahan has written the Corpendium chapter on the subject. So thank you so much for speaking with me about this. Thank you for having me. 
I personally find this to be one of the more upsetting types of encounters for me in the emergency department. I feel so bad for the patient. The patient's typically traumatized and scared and has to now face a bunch of very uncomfortable conversations and examinations. And we want to do our best to, of course, focus on the medical care, stabilizing the patient. That's the top priority. But there's so many other issues to address during this visit that I want to cover with you as well. Topics like evidence collection, um, the emotional trauma, and what we can do to make this experience less uncomfortable for the patient so they're not having to repeat everything over and over and over. And I also want to state right from the front that I'm going to refer to our patients as she, her, but we all know that victims of sexual assault, of course, can be men, they can be transgender, anyone can be a victim. But for our purposes today, I'm going to be referring to she, her. So, Michelle, why don't we start by just sort of clarifying, as the emergency physician or clinician, what exactly is our role in evaluating and treating victims of sexual assault? So I think it's important that we understand, first and foremost, that this medical forensic exam is a basic right that we should be offering to all patients who present to the emergency department reporting a sexual assault. And our role in the emergency department has several components. The first and foremost, we want to make sure that we're treating for any acute medical conditions and traumatic injuries. That is going to be paramount, um, just making sure that the patient is stabilized. Then we want to talk about preservation and collection of forensic evidence, which will often involve the use of sexual assault uh, nurse facilitators if you have that available to you at your uh, site where you work. Next, after that, we want to talk about prophylaxing for pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections based upon the most current treatment guidelines. And then, of course, we want to provide them with psychosocial support services. So this is where social workers, mental health counselors, rape crisis advocates, et cetera, this is where these individuals can be most helpful to come in and help us also provide resources to the patient. We definitely want to try to take a victim-centered and a trauma-informed approach to their care, trying to make them as comfortable as possible and developing rapport as quickly as we can so that we can move through their evaluation and really get them to the forensic evidence collection, as we know that that's very time sensitive. If you're working at a facility where you don't have the ability to perform a forensic exam, you should make every attempt to transfer them to a local facility that has the appropriate resources after you have medically cleared them of these acute or life-threatening injuries. And keep in mind that involvement of social workers and rape crisis counselors can facilitate their discharge planning and really ensure their safety upon leaving the ED after we've completed the rest of our evaluation there. They can assist the patients in the legal process and with psychosocial support services, you know, for the months and years to come. And so patients, after they finish their ED evaluation, they should have a good follow-up care plan arranged for them. So let's talk about that whole team approach, because this is one of those complaints where once you understand that this is what has happened to the patient, there's a lot of phone calls that get made to, to sort of gather the team. Who are we calling? Who are those members of the team? that are important to be involved as soon as possible? So I feel very lucky that we have a dedicated, what we call DVSAC team. It's essentially a SANE program, a SAFE program. There's lots of different abbreviations that are used nationwide, but essentially sexual assault uh, forensic examiners, sexual assault nurse examiners, and that is mostly made up of nurses who are trained in performing this exam and providing these resources. But we also have social workers who are readily available and who are associated with the DVSAC team. We have our mental health counselors who can be called upon, you know, not just for, you know, our other ED patients, but specifically for these patients. 
We have law enforcement who may or may not be involved depending on what the patient consents to and what the patient's wishes are. And of course, when we're talking about evaluating for acute injuries and traumatic injuries, we have to involve our subspecialists like our trauma surgeons, getting gynecology involved if there are significant injuries there, urology. You know, We have a lot of different consultants that are going to play a role depending on what the patient's particular injuries are and what their particular psychosocial needs may be. So as you mentioned, our top priority is the medical evaluation, stabilizing the patient, treating injuries. How do we do this in a way that is not overly intrusive and also does not interfere with evidence collection? So really, when these patients present to the ED, we of course want to stabilize them, but we need to know that these patients should be prioritized and should be seen and medically cleared as soon as possible, since we know that evidence collection is going to be time-sensitive. When we are documenting our assessment, it needs to be thorough, but we need to target it to the event. So we want to make sure to provide the history and state the facts as reported by the victim. That way we're not muddying the waters or creating any issues if it does go to court. And all of our documentation and all of our assessments should really be easy to interpret by both medically trained individuals as well as lay people. Because a lot of the time, if this goes to a trial and there's a jury the medical jargon may not be something that people are familiar with, and it may actually impact the outcome of a patient's trial or a patient's legal case if what we're trying to convey is just not very well understood. So I was taught, and it's my understanding, that we should try to keep that history of the present illness as simple as possible and medically focused. That's for multiple reasons. You don't want the patient having to repeat her story over and over and over, and if facts change, because she recalls something different in the second time she tells the story. You don't want to put conflicting information. So how do you recommend that we document the history of the present illness? What actually needs to be there and what is just too much and not helpful? So I was taught similarly initially that you should be sort of a little bit more vague and, and not really provide a whole lot of details. But the more that I delved into the literature on this, overall, it definitely history should be documented objectively and in an unbiased manner. We're not there to prove or disprove what happened. Our history of the sexual assault patient should be brief and should be targeted towards ruling out potential injuries and should involve information that's really documented as being relevant to the assault, avoiding any extraneous information. Some important questions to ask include some specific details about the timing of the event, you know, the number of assailants, what type of assault occurred, whether penetration occurred, whether there were any objects like weapons or restraints, and whether they're having any symptoms. You can also include information about whether there's concern for a drug-facilitated sexual assault. Some of this may also fall under the history taken by the forensic nurse examiner, but I think these questions are important to us because it can help us to determine if and what acute injuries have occurred. So knowing if weapons were used or restraints can help us to understand if, you know, say the patient had a strangulation injury, that is going to impact our ability to rule out acute injuries that may be life-threatening. Let's talk about the physical exam. What do we need to do? What's, it, what's the right amount where we're documenting, we're checking for injuries, but not overdoing it and putting her through more than what's necessary. I think it's important to, again, develop rapport with the patient and let them know our role as the, the emergency physician or clinician and how it is our job to rule out any acute injuries. And so that will involve some form of physical examination. However, 
keeping in mind that if they're going to have a forensic exam, that they're going to have more detailed, you know, pelvic examinations, both internal and external. So I really tried to focus my exam on the patient's complaints, the potential mechanism of injury that they are reporting, you know, looking for any external signs of trauma, like ligature marks, bite marks, anything where it's going to impact my ability to rule out something acutely traumatic or an acute medical issue that I need to deal with right away. Keep in mind that they're going to be undergoing a much more detailed exam if they are seeing a forensic nurse examiner after the fact. Now, if they do have urogenital injuries, then that is going to be part of our acute you know, treatment in the ED because we may need to involve trauma surgery, gynecology, or urology, or other subspecialists to help with managing those acute injuries. Are you typically doing at least an external check in terms of a GU exam and saving the rest of it for the the nurse examiner? Or are you not even doing that if there's no specific complaint of pain or injury externally to the vaginal area or to the genitals? If I know that they're going to be seen by the forensic nurse examiner, I will often defer that unless the patient has a specific complaint and I'm concerned that there could be a more serious injury. In general, I try to minimize patients having multiple pelvic exams, even if it's not a sexual assault-related complaint. So I think the more that we do that type of exam, the more traumatizing it can be for the patient. So unless I'm really worried that there is something that I'm going to find that's going to change their plan of care, I really try to leave that for the nurse examiner. One, because it's traumatizing to the patient, and two, because it could potentially affect evidence collection if you know, we're removing garments that they've been wearing since the assault, or if any sort of debris that's there is lost, that could be a loss of evidence that may be helpful for them in their case. So I try to keep that in mind and just do enough where I feel that the patient has been stabilized. Unless there's a specific indication to undress the patient, for example, in the setting of trauma where we need full exposure to properly evaluate the patient, we could generally leave the patient's clothes on and try to do our exam around that. We still want to do a thorough exam, of course, but we have to remember that clothing can also be a source of evidence. And so we want to try to preserve that and how we approach our exam whenever possible. Do you agree? And in general, how much exposure do you think we need to get an adequate exam? So I think it's necessary to uncover, but trying to Again, minimize any trauma to them. Having them undress may be very psychologically triggering. And so trying to do it in a piecemeal fashion, you know, lifting the shirt up or lifting up the back of the shirt and then, you know, putting things back in place. As long as you're able to really fully assess for any skin findings and do a full physical exam, I think it's not totally necessary to fully undress them as long as you're able to see everything that you need to see to perform a a good physical exam. Tests. So we've talked about gathering the history. We've talked about doing our examination. Let's talk about what tests, if any, we need to run. And for the sake of simplicity, let's imagine that we're taking care of a patient that we're not doing a trauma workup on or any sort of specific medical workup. We're just focused on treating the sexual assault. In females of childbearing age, we want to make sure that we're obtaining a pregnancy test and offering them prophylaxis. The CDC has guidelines that they recommend uh, for testing patients for sexually transmitted infections that include chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, HIV, hepatitis B, and syphilis. A lot of these are going to be based on nucleic acid amplification tests if you have that available to you. So 
particularly for chlamydia and gonorrhea, at any sites of penetration or attempted penetration. And then whatever testing you have available for trichomonas, for bacterial vaginosis and candidiasis, they also have recommendations for point-of-care testing or for a wet mount. And then in order to test for HIV, hepatitis B, and syphilis, they do recommend serum testing. There are not currently any guidelines about uh, hepatitis C testing, so you can sort of use this as a case-by-case decision in discussion with the patient. If you are testing for HIV, there is a recommendation to have follow-up testing done at six weeks, three months, and six months post-assault. And you can also do repeat testing for syphilis and hepatitis B at time intervals after the fact. If you are going to go ahead with HIV post-exposure prophylaxis, you're also going to need blood work to check the patient's CBC, their BUN creatinine, and their liver function tests, as that can all be impacted by the medications that are used for post-exposure prophylaxis. If there's any concern for a drug-facilitated sexual assault, which happens in up to 50% of sexual assault cases, you can talk to the patient about sending comprehensive toxicology testing. And you really want to try to do that ideally within 72 hours because we know that a lot of these drugs have short half-lives and rapid metabolism of these substances can happen. And so we're getting baseline HIV status and you're Mm -hmm. also saying the CDC recommends baseline syphilis and baseline hepatitis B? Yes. And again, hepatitis C, they don't have any specific recommendations right now. Mm -hmm. At the facility where I work, we do send hepatitis C and HIV testing Let's talk about the treatments that we should be offering. And you have touched on them already a little bit, but let's talk about all of them now all together. First and foremost, treating for any acute injuries or any acute trauma. We want to then talk about prophylaxis for sexually transmitted infections. So the CDC does recommend prophylactically treating patients for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomoniasis. So we're not going to review the specific antimicrobials here just for the sake of time but these could be easily found in Corpendium and on the CDC website. Hepatitis B, we should offer immunization, plus the immunoglobulin if the patient is unvaccinated and there's a high consideration that the patient who assaulted them may be positive for hepatitis B. If it's unknown whether the patient has antibodies, even if they have been previously vaccinated, we can offer them the hepatitis B immunization as well. There is a recommendation for HPV vaccination for sexual assault survivors who are age 9 to 26 uh, in females, and then if they're male, age 9 to 21. Again, this is going to be a two- or three-dose schedule based on the age that it's initiated. I will say that we do not routinely do this, as far as I'm aware, but it's still a recommendation from the CDC as of 2015. With regards to HIV post-exposure prophylaxis, the risk and benefit of using post-exposure prophylaxis should really be discussed with the patient on a case-by-case basis. So it's going to depend on their individual exposure, whether it was known if the assailant is HIV positive. And you can use the national PEP line to help you make these decisions if you're not sure whether post-exposure prophylaxis is necessary. The PEP line is a number that you as the emergency clinician can call to get some help in trying to assess risk and make this decision it's 888-HIV-4911. You can easily look this up. We also have a chapter in Corpendium on HIV post-exposure prophylaxis and a calculator that helps you assess the risk of the patient contracting HIV. So you can use that to have a more informed discussion with your patient. Tetanus status should be updated. If the patient isn't sure if they are updated, I usually will go ahead and give them a Tdap. And then pregnancy prophylaxis using levonorgestrel, also known as Plan B, 
or Eulipristol. Those are the two most recommended. Plan B, I find to be the most readily available because we know that it's over-the-counter now, and ideally this should be given within 72 hours of the sexual assault. And currently, there is not a recommendation for syphilis prophylaxis. Rather, patients are encouraged just to return for repeat testing. If you practice in an area where syphilis is highly endemic, such as where I am now in the Central Valley of California, then you may want to go ahead and add on a dose of penicillin for syphilis prophylaxis as well. Now, this is a lot of medications all at once. I have found that this can be poorly tolerated, can cause a lot of side effects, and one of the common ones being nausea and vomiting. So I will typically offer an antiemetic. Is that part of your practice as well? I will offer them Zofran both in the department as well as a prescription, particularly if they're going home with HIV post-exposure prophylaxis. We know that there can be a lot of GI side effects and intolerance to those medications. And if they you know, are really at high risk, we want to make sure that they're going to be able to hold those medications down. So I will often send them with a prescription for an antiemetic. And in closing, do you have any other tips that you want to share with people for taking care of sexual assault victims? Keep an eye out for signs of recurrent domestic violence, recurrent abuse, or recurrent sexual assault, and then keep human trafficking always in the back of your mind when you see a patient. If you have any concern that this could be related to sex trafficking, contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline and just, you know, always keep it in the back of your mind because trafficking is so much more prevalent than we know. And a lot of these patients will come to the ED for sexual assault related complaints. And I think the last most important point is make sure that this patient that you have seen after you've, you know, managed any acute medical issues, after they've had the forensic exam, you want to make sure they have a safety plan and they have the resources that they need to enact it. And the more that they trust us as ED providers and as, you know, members of the hospital team, the more that they're likely to take the medications that are offered to them and to use the resources that are offered to them. So it's really important that we try to, to make sure that they have all of the resources that they need and have a good safety plan for when they leave the, the ED. Summary. Thank you so much, Michelle. This is such a big topic. I feel like we could go into a lot more detail if we had more time, but some of the key take-home points for me, remember to prioritize these patients. Regardless of ED wait times, this is someone who you want to get into a room right away. This is a time-sensitive issue. Above all, our top priority is to evaluate for medical and traumatic emergencies and to stabilize the patient. Then, once that's addressed, we gather the team, social work, forensic nurse examiner, law enforcement. This is not just a medical or traumatic problem. There are also a lot of social and legal issues involved. Keep your documentation focused on the facts and avoid jargon, and that's going to help the victim's legal case if it goes to court. The pelvic exam can be done by the forensic nurse examiner, unless, of course, you need to perform the exam to assess for injuries. Now, there's a lot of screening tests and prophylaxis medications. I recommend using the Corpendium chapter or the CDC website for guidance. Finally, we have to consider the possibility for human trafficking, and there is a national hotline that you can call, if relevant, to talk through the case. It's time for the Ultra Ultra Summary. My name is Mel Herbert. This is content from November. Abstract one. And the first paper was repeat 
Computer tomography for anticoagulant patients with an initial negative scan is not cost-effective. We like that in the journal surgery. One of the problems that they noted in this study is that it was a chart review without very good methods, but they had over 1,600 blunt trauma patients, average age 77, about half of them male, who came in and were anticoagulated with an antiplatelet agent or with an anticoagulant, and they had a bonk on the head. And everybody agrees these people should get a head CT. And they found that 18% of these head CTs were positive. Nobody can agree on what to do next. In some places, they just send you home. In some places, they rescan you at some period of time, or they just observe you. In this study, at this hospital, they basically rescanned you at six hours, and they found only about a 0.9% rebleed rate, and no interventions were required. You are more likely to have a rebleed if you're on Coumadin, and certainly if you are very super therapeutic over three, three and a half. So this sort of goes with uh, what you would expect. Yeah, you're going to find some rebleeds. Most of the time, they're not going to be clinically important. You're not going to do anything about it. And Coumadin is probably the worst player here. This was a cost study, and they said it wasn't cost effective. But I think we can extrapolate, along with the other data that we know, is that if you choose to re-CT scan, okay, that's fine. But you won't find many positives. And very few of these people actually require an intervention. So it is still split about what people do. A lot of people just scan you once, and if negative, say, come back if you get a headache. It is a really common scenario. There is still no big, giant, randomized, great trial to tell us exactly what to do, but this gives us some useful information. Your probability of badness is pretty low. Not zero, pretty low. If you have that initial negative head CT in your anticoagulated patient. Abstract 4. Abstract 4 was hydronephrosis severity clarifies prognosis and guides management for emergency department patients with acute ureteral colic. And it was in the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. It's a very good article, and you should go back and listen to the discussion that Mike and Sanjay have, because basically what this article showed is that the more hydronephrosis you have, this correlates with the biggest stone, and it correlates with less likelihood of passage. But it turns out that even if you've got bad hydro and a big stone, most of the time you'll actually pass that stone. And there's a really good discussion about, so what does that mean? Should we be scanning these people, CT, ultrasound? The reason that we used to really worry about hydro was because if you've got it for a long time, is it going to take out your kidney? But if you've got follow-up in the emergency department, maybe knowing how much hydro isn't really important. And Mike makes a good argument for probably the first thing you should do is just see if they're going to pass it by themselves. And the vast majority will. And those that don't, they should get an ultrasound or a CT scan at some point along the line and then decide about whether they need lithotripsy or something else to really... Interesting discussion. I can tell you from my practice back in the day when you're at a county hospital and these patients are not going to get seen by anybody for months, if I saw severe hydro, I would be really anxious about that patient because if they had severe hydro for a long time, I was worried about that kidney getting killed. And so I'd want to get those patients followed up in a setting where it was really hard to get follow-up. Whereas if they had more mild hydro, I was less worried. So there's a lot of ways to think about this, but go listen to it because Mike makes a good argument for if you're in a real system with follow-up, maybe you shouldn't be worried about hydro much at all, initially. Abstract five. So you got a guy with UTI, he's afebrile. How long do you treat them? Because, uh, you know, traditionally we said, guys, well, you got to do it for 14 days. Well, this study, which was from JAMA, is the effect of seven versus 14 days of antibiotic therapy on resolution of symptoms among afebrile men with urinary tract infection, a randomized trial, and they basically found that seven days of Cipro or Bactrim was the same as 14, or at least not uh, non-inferior, and was also associated with a little bit uh, less poopy pants. 
So this is pretty good evidence. It's not definitive. Nothing is definitive, I guess. But it's pretty good evidence that in the men who are afebrile with the UTIs, that you can treat for seven days and have pretty good outcomes. Obviously, there's going to be some failures and you're going to follow them up. But this was uh, one of the few studies that have actually looked at this in men. There's been a lot of studies in women about three days, five days, seven days, 14 days. This one in the dudes. Abstract six. Abstract six was comparison of greater occipital nerve and supraorbital nerve blocks in the treatment of acute migraine headache, a randomized double-blind trial. It was in clinical neurology and neurosurgery. And uh, as many of you know, Mike Minchin loves to stab needles into the heads of people who have headaches. And this was a very big study and it was pretty well done and it showed that it worked very well. So Mike was very happy. Most of the studies are quite positive on this. A couple lately haven't been very positive, but this one was quite positive. So if you're a head stabber, this is going to make you feel pretty good. Abstract 9. There's a really interesting paper that I personally liked because I used to see this all the time. Intravenous insulin for the management of non-emergent hyperglycemia in the emergency department, the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So the scenario that it happens a lot here, particularly in the US, is that you have a lot of people at county hospitals, got poor follow-up, who come to the emergency department and they've got really high sugars, but they're not in DKA and they're not, you know, hyperosmolar coma. They've just got a high sugar and they've probably had a high sugar for weeks to months. And we see this high sugar and we never know what to do. Some people do nothing and say, you know, tweak your meds and uh, we'll fix this over the weeks and months ahead while you're waiting together and see somebody. Some people freak out and give them piles of fluids and give them IV insulin in order to make the chart look better and send them home where their glucose level looks closer to normal. Well, this study, which they said does not have the best methodology in the world, but it does suggest that giving these people IV insulin to bring it down for what is probably a chronic condition is not a good idea, that it's associated with hypoglycemia and hypokalemia and other issues, and it just sort of uh, is my bias. My bias is if they've been high for a long time, making the chart look better is not a good idea. You need to tweak their meds and you need to get them follow-up, but just sort of slamming in some insulin to make it look better right now, it's kind of silly. This is a chronic problem and you potentially could make things a lot worse by trying to fix it today. Just my bias. I'm just saying, not a great study, but it fits my bias. Oh, and I should say, I did a study on this. Just I asked the ER docs across the country this 25 years ago. What level of glucose would you freak out and give uh, fluid or insulin? And uh, it was all over the place. Some people, if it was just a little bit above normal, would do it. And some people wouldn't do it if it was huge. So even we can't agree. Abstract 10. Abstract 10 was a big study. The effect of restrictive versus liberal blood pressure transfusion strategy on major cardiovascular events. Amongst patients with acute myocardial infarction and anemia, the reality randomized trial in Jamrin basically said a restrictive blood transfusion policy for those people having an MI who are also anemic was not inferior to the usual and safe blood products. A larger study is coming, but it looks like, as in all of the restrictive blood studies that we've done, I think, on EMA for everything, that a little less is a little more. Abstract 11. Abstract 11 was an important one. It was about fascia iliaca blocks. Uh, it's hard to say. Reduced opiate consumption. It was actually done by orthopedic surgeons in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma, July of 2021. We have videos on how to do this on the site. You can go check out. We also have a discussion about the safety and the things that you need to do if you're going to do this. So don't run out and start doing fascia iliaca blocks without some training. But it worked. And as Sanjay notes, this was done by orthopedic surgeons. They are now getting on board and will be less likely, I think, in the future to yell at you for doing this 
because it changes their exam or whatever ridiculous thing they say. We can significantly reduce the amount of opioid given to these elderly people with broken legs, and that's probably a very good thing. Abstract 16. Abstract 16 was sort of the hot topic of the day, which is bup, high-dose bupamorphine induction in the emergency department for the treatment of opioid use disorder. This is one of those, uh, go listen to the review, go pull the paper if this is something that uh, you are doing or considering in your emergency department, and I think more and more emergency departments are. This is sort of a take on using a much higher dose so that you can extend these people to get them into their outpatient sort of recovery process. And they found with this higher dose regimen that it worked really, really well. It's not a perfect study, but it does suggest that uh, you can go higher and this might be something to consider if you're starting a program. Abstract 17. Abstract 17 is just a paper. I kind of like just the concept here and it's public perception of physician attire and professionalism in the US. It was in JAMA and they basically surveyed a whole bunch of people and they had these models and they dressed them up in different ways and they didn't show their heads and they said, you know, is this uh, person more professional, less professional? And they basically found a whole bunch of interesting things worth reading or listening to uh, Sanjay and Mike talk about. But basically, if you were sort of older, there was this expectation that a clean white coat made you look more professional, but there was so much more into it than that, suggesting that the younger people, uh, they got it that docs don't just have to wear white coats. But there was also a big gender bias as well. Like if you're a woman and you're wearing professional clothes and you had the white coat, you weren't perceived as professional as a male in the same situation. So we know about this and we also know about racial biases and all this stuff. And you could sort of just sort of give up and say, well, there's just all these biases and there's nothing you can do about it. But we know that they change over time because younger people are different from older people. But I think the key point that Sanjay pointed out is that it's all about communication and it's really important that you say, my name is X, I am the physician or I am the nurse. Like going into emergency departments, going into hospitals is very confusing for people. They don't really know all the different types of provider there. So being very explicit in that, maybe a couple of times, or as uh, we used to do at USC, you have a big tag on your name tag that's huge that says doctor, nurse, tech, whatever it is, so that the patients themselves can get oriented. What really matters, of course, is how good you are and how nice you are. But there are these biases and you just sort of need to know about them, even as we are trying to change them. Look, that's all we have time for. It's the Ultra Ultra Summary. They covered a whole bunch of other stuff. Can I say it again? You've got to listen to EMA at least once, twice, three, or ten times a month. And over time, you'll become what? That's right. A legend. A literature legend. If you want to do that, and you should want to do that, you need to listen to the whole show. Herbert, out. Space repetition. A legend. Repetition of space. You need to listen to the whole show. Space repetition. Ten times a month. Repetition of space. And over time you'll become what? Space repetition. A legend. A legend. A continuing human inquiry into the grand cosmological question. Space repetition. One way or another, we are poised at the edge of forever. Forever. Out. Out. I'm here with Gita Pensa, emergency doc, occasional MRAP host, and creator of the Doctors and Litigation podcast. Gita Pensa. Gita Pensa. Gita, it's great to have you back on to talk some medical malpractice. I am happy to be back. As you know, this topic is very near and dear to my heart. Absolutely. And for people who haven't listened to the podcast, they really should. It's a great series. I know you've brought some of that onto the show. Gita, we talk a lot about trials. We talk about the cases and we talk about the experts, et cetera, but most cases don't get to trial. What are the other outcomes that we can see? Yeah. So once a case is filed, generally they have three routes that they can take. The first is that 
the defendant can be dropped or the whole case can be dropped. And, you know, let's face it, that's what we're usually all hoping for once we get into it. But this is much more likely in cases with multiple defendants. And it's unusual for a suit just to be dropped outright, but it does happen. The second option is that it can go all the way to trial with a verdict at the end. Or the third is that the case is settled out. One thing that I I think I was never really cognizant of, but you've, you've got to remember that once a case goes to trial, you can still settle that case really up to the point of verdict. So there are a lot of last minute settlements on the courthouse steps kind of thing. In a lot of ways, I think it's reassuring to us that many of the times physicians get dropped or individual physicians get dropped off the case. And there is a high settlement rate. At least we don't have to go to trial. But I think that we feel settlement reflects fault of the physician. And I understand the sentiment that a lot of people feel that, uh, you know, paying out a settlement reflects some fault of the physician, but that is just not the case. Just as I always want to emphasize that many physicians are sued in the first place, despite there being any clear malpractice, many, many cases are settled, even though there was no wrongdoing on the part of the physician. You know, we feel that it's this admission of guilt, but many cases are settled even though the physician actually met or exceeded the standard of care. And this can be fraught with emotion for the physicians. So this is a good reason that we should be talking about it. All right, from the physician side, what's the benefit of settling the case? I feel like if I got to that point where the case was going forward, maybe even the trial is starting, I would want to carry it all the way to the end. Just be like, see, I told you I did the right thing. But there is a benefit for the physician. Yeah, so there's, there's two main advantages to settling a case for both sides. And the first is speed, and the second is certainty. Trials can last for, and the road to trial can last for many, many years. A settlement early in the process can just get this off of your mind. You can just finally be done with it. You know, in my podcast, I talk about how my case lasted for 12 years. I mean, who wants to be in something for 12 years? So by the time we were heading back to trial the second time, I was begging them to settle. I just wanted to be done with this thing. And in terms of certainty, you know, juries are very, very unpredictable. There's never a guarantee that things are going to go the way you think they will. Juries in general don't have medical knowledge. So in many ways, trials become this battle of expert witnesses and the jury deciding who they like better, the defendant, the plaintiff, how do they feel about this? It's so much more about that and the optics than the medicine involved in the case or actual standard of care. A settlement takes that guesswork. It takes the, the chance out of it. You know that it's going to be done with. You know what the dollar amount is. And everyone can just move on without that high degree of uncertainty. What about downsides? What are the downsides that we see with settlements? Uh, so, you know, like everything, it's, it is a give and take. So for the plaintiff, there's a downside for them. They get cash in hand, which is nice, but they lose the chance of this outsized windfall at trial, right? There's not going to be a huge judgment in their favor. So, so they've got to take that off the table. The insurer, they pay out some amount of money that they agree to that they feel like they can afford. But, you know, it's nice when they go to trial and don't have to pay anything. It makes other attorneys uh, sit up and take notice that they're willing to fight these cases to the end, and it sort of diminishes the chances of frivolous lawsuits being brought against them. And then for the doctor, there's definitely some downsides to it. So one is that they will be reported to the National Practitioner Databank, and when they apply for privileges and things like that, they're going to have to report that this case was settled. And as we were alluding to before, this takes an emotional toll. On them, you know, whether or not you feel like your actions played any 
role in an adverse event, settling a case and making a payment out to the plaintiff. It feels like a real uh, psychological burden that we carry around. We're worried about people judging us. This is public knowledge. We're worried about what our colleagues think. We're worried that this makes us less of a good physician, which is not true, but, uh, but I understand that that feeling is somewhat inherent in it. And then again, this is why we want to be talking about this. Let's say I'm involved in a case and I'm, I'm not bulletproof. I, I don't feel like my care was exactly perfect or forget about whether my care was perfect or not. There was a bad outcome. And so I go into that meeting with the lawyers and say, I want to settle. Is it my decision? Can I make that decision and say, let's just settle and get this done with? It completely depends on your policy. In a lot of policies, it's actually the insurer that makes that decision, but they will often take into account the physician's wishes. If your policy has something called a consent to settle clause, then the insurance company does actually require your consent to settle a case. Not all policies have a consent to settle clause. But there is a flip side to the consent to settle, and that is that usually a consent to settle clause is accompanied by something called a hammer clause. And the hammer clause basically means that if you force your insurer to pass up on a settlement offer, essentially pushing this case towards trial, and then at trial, there is a judgment against you, then you are personally responsible for any amount over that proposed settlement. So if there was a settlement offer for $250,000 and you did not consent to settle for that, and then you went to trial and then there was a $500,000 judgment against you, then you, under the hammer clause, would be personally responsible for the other $250,000. And so when the numbers, especially as they get up there in the millions, you can see why maybe you do not want as much control over this decision as you think you do. You know, I was faced with a multi-million dollar demand. I signed away that consent to settle as soon as I could. I just like, you know what, I want to be protected financially. I'm going to leave this decision to the insurer. And, you know, I can give you my opinion, which is that I want to settle. And then they said, nope, we're going to trial. So it worked the other way around now. So they settle, they have an agreement to settle for 250000 I want to go to trial and I win. I get the 250000 right? <laughs> if only. <laughs> but I, I mean, that's a really important Definitely thing not. to know. I, I had no idea that if you deny the settlement, if you decide that you want to push for it, depending on your insurance that you have, you might actually be on the hook for that money. That's, that's a big thing to consider. It's a really important thing. It's really important for people to know their policy. And I think a lot of physicians, uh, me included, before I was sued, I had no idea what was in my policy. I just kind of figured, oh, I'm insured and that'll take care of everything. You don't really understand the nuance or what's in it. You know, in, in more and more, we're seeing physicians who are insured in large groups with their hospital. You know, what does that mean in terms of your right to settle or to have your own attorney? All of these things are things that you should understand about your policy. And if you don't understand them and you can't read the legalese, it makes sense to sit down with somebody in your risk department and just have a conversation or have that person come and talk to your group about what happens in this case, what happens in that case, what are my rights as an individual physician, can you settle this case without my consent, all that kind of stuff. So this is obviously a very complicated decision. Should we settle? Should we not settle? Should we go to trial? What factors are often taken into account when we're deciding if we should settle or push to trial? When physicians think about this, we tend to uh, act from a place of emotion, right? We're worried about our reputation. We have a sense of fairness, justice. And we, you know, on the flip side, are worried about if we go to trial, how much time is this going to take up? How much stress is this going to incur on me and my family? 
what if we lose? What if there's a verdict? So there's all this whole whirlwind of things that we think about. The insurer is thinking about this really as as a business decision. They have a responsibility to think about this as a business decision. And your case is certainly not the only case that they are thinking about whether we pay for a trial or pay for settlement, et cetera, et cetera. So they have to, they're thinking in totality as a business. And they often do take the will of the physician into account because certainly a physician who is a super stressed defendant and doesn't want to go to trial and doesn't want to testify isn't going to perform well. So that's one little piece of the puzzle for them. In terms of things that the insurer might think about, it gets, you know, it gets very complex, but it's mostly about the optics of the case because they're thinking, how likely is it that a jury is going to side with the plaintiff in this case, right? So they're going to look at the strength of the case. So yes, it does come into account if the physician clearly lapsed in judgment and there was clear malpractice then that insurance company is going to try as hard as they can to settle that case because there is a good chance that the jury would find in favor for the plaintiff and maybe give them a substantial award, if, especially if the damages were significant, right? But they're also going to look at the strength of the physician as a defendant. Like I mentioned, is this a defendant who's sort of kicking and screaming and doesn't want to go, doesn't want to testify, doesn't want to prepare? Or is this a physician who has a demeanor and a comforting presence who can educate the jury, who can keep their head when a plaintiff's attorney is attacking them? Can they be professional and really sort of sway the jury to side with them to think that, you know, hey, I would want this person to be my physician, right? If, you, if a physician really can, can demonstrate that at deposition and during the process, they might think, oh, like this, this physician might win them over at trial. So they're going to look at your deposition performance. They're going to look at whether or not you gave effective testimony at deposition. And they're also going to look at the optics of the case. You know, I spoke to a group of residents recently and I gave them three cases where I wanted them to guess, did this case get settled or did it go to trial? And of course, the point was that they were going to be wrong each time. But in cases where there are significant damages, a young patient, something where, you know, the, the jury is going to have a lot of sympathy for the plaintiff, then those cases might wind up getting settled whether or not the physician did anything wrong. I, we talked about a case where a physician started antibiotics as soon as possible for a patient with meningococcemia, but that young woman died. And even though there was nothing else to be done, the insurer said, no, you know, it's not going to end well. So we're just going to settle this. And the physician didn't have a choice. So it's obviously a lot that goes into this, including the length of the trial and the costs and the optics. The optics, I think, is one that's very tough for us. Like you said, you have a young patient who comes in with meningococcemia, you start the antibiotics. It doesn't matter that you start the antibiotics. Often those patients just don't do well. And I think what we really have to take away from this is to divorce ourselves as much as we possibly can from the fact that the insurance wants to push for settlement versus that's an implication that we performed bad medicine. And this is, of course, and you know this better than anybody, this is why malpractice is so tough because we get so attached emotionally. But everybody else in the picture, aside from the plaintiff, is emotionally detached. They're emotionally detached from this and it is just business for them. And I feel like if, if we could understand that, it would go really far towards feeling or making us feel not so bad about when these decisions are made, whether to settle, whether to go to trial, whether you get dropped or you don't get dropped. We have to understand that it is a business and, and it's not about how good of a physician we are or what we did or our feeling about the case. It really is about the business. Exactly. It's, it's math, 
for them, it's math, right? You mentioned a trial is super expensive. You've got to pay all those attorney's hours. You've got to pay all those expert hours. We've talked about how much they cost. You know, the more complex the case, the more experts there are, the more this is going to cost them. And the insurer is thinking about what are the losses that we had this year? What other cases do we have going on right now that might influence how, whether or not we can risk a large verdict? There's just a lot that comes into it. And then there's, there's also, you know, there's, there's behind the scenes stuff that we never think about as physicians. Like once they know who the judge is, is this a plaintiff friendly judge? Who were the attorneys involved? Where is this taking place? Is the jury pool going to lean towards plaintiffs or defendants? Like all of these things, this whole huge complex calculus is what the insurer is weighing when we just care about like, did we do the right thing? And unfortunately, it gets a little lost in all of that standard of care a lot of times is not the thing that determines what happens next. And we just have to understand that so that we are able to reckon with it emotionally better than we do traditionally. Summary. I think the big things that I take away from this is, is one, most cases are not going to go to trial. Most cases, either the physician's going to be dropped or it's going to be settled. And that settlement can happen at any time. And we shouldn't be surprised if the insurance company says we're going to trial and then two days into the trial, like, and we're settling. We shouldn't be surprised if that happens, especially like you said, once the jury is determined, the judge is figured out, the, the lawyers are figured out, and other things that we're never going to be privy to that might come into that decision. And our job, what we can do, aside from obviously practicing the best medicine that we can beforehand, but once we get to this point, really what we can do is we can, we can say what we think, we can tell them our feelings about it, but we have to understand that they might not act based on our feelings. It doesn't matter how vociferous we are that we want to go to trial, that we did the right thing, they might still say, it doesn't matter, doc. We think settlement is going to be better and we have to be okay with that and understand that this is a business. This isn't about you personally. It's not about the medicine you practiced. It's a business and it is simply the numbers on both sides. And this is how our system works. And I think once we, we understand that a little bit better, it makes it easier for us to accept. But for most of us, the first time through, we're not going to understand any of this stuff. And maybe even the second or third time, Drew Gita, to be honest, <laughs> it's probably really important for us to talk to our risk management, to talk to the lawyers and, and, and understand a little bit more about why these decisions are made, how they're made. So I think this is important for us to, to know and understand, especially since most of us are going to be involved in settlements and very few of us are going to be involved in actual cases. Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to talk about this topic at any point. Thanks so much, Gita. I'm sure we'll get lots of questions about this. We'll send those over to you. And we definitely are going to have you back on to talk more MedMal down the line. It's Mike Weinstock's Bounce Bass. Sometimes even though you consider a serious cause of a patient's symptoms and exclude it after a well-done evaluation, you come to find that the patient bounces back with the very diagnosis you thought you had excluded. This is the focus of the newest Bounce Backs book in the series, Bounce Backs Critical Care, where we put the reader in the footsteps of the listener on the return visit, progressing through multiple decision points with expert whispers advising us along the way. And I am excited to say that I have one of those expert whisperers here with us today. This is Evie Marcolini, who you know well, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine Neurocritical Care at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Evie, thank you so much for joining and lending your expertise here. Mike, I'm so happy to be here. Well, I hope I didn't spoil things too much, but this case was a bounce back visit, and we did not get it exactly right at the initial visit. In October 2010, the month of MRAP was mostly devoted to our Ohio State Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds, a case of a 51-year-old woman with vertigo who turned out to have, no big surprise, 
a stroke. <laughs> it was not labyrinthitis or BPPV, right? The patient was a 51-year-old woman with a history of MI, diabetes, and hepatitis C, whose chief complaint was vertigo. And the care was good, and vertebral basilar insufficiency was considered, but according to the progress note, it seemed less likely because of several things, namely an ability to reproduce the symptoms on exam, her ability to walk down the hall, so good for you know doing that, and also the lack of any peripheral neuro symptoms. So in other words, this is our worst nightmare. So Evie, our story starts where the OSU conference left off, but before we even go there, I thought you and I could just very briefly discuss some of this, <laughs> and as I prefaced it, our worst nightmare type of scenario. We're evaluating a patient at the bedside of the ED with vertigo, and we think it's probably BPPV. So give me just a few things that we can sort of hang our hat on, and I'm going to give you just a couple scenarios and see if, and I, I have my fingers crossed here, that you would manage things the same way that I have been doing <laughs> for the last over two decade career that I've been doing. So what are some of those hang your hat on things that would make us either more or less concerned about a central cause compared to a peripheral cause of vertigo? The patient who comes in with anything close to dizziness, vertigo, nausea, vomiting, et cetera, those are vestibular symptoms. And I put them all in one big basket. And when we're thinking about posterior stroke, it's the patient with acute vestibular symptoms, and that's the person who has persistent symptoms. The BPPV patient is going to have symptoms that are triggered with movement, but in between that movement, it resolves. The big difference is with the patient who has posterior stroke, the symptoms are going to be constant and persistent. And if you think about it, if they have a posterior stroke, they're going to either have a thrombus or a clot in the vasculature, and that doesn't come and go. It's there. Then you've got patients who come in with risk factors, diabetes, hypertension, previous stroke, cardiovascular, atrial fibrillation. These patients are setups for a stroke, so you have to be thinking about that. And the onset is important. If somebody says, I had a gradual onset, this has been brewing for a few days, I'm not as concerned about the posterior stroke, but if they say, I had some symptoms, and then all of a sudden, this morning at 9 a.m., this happened. I started having nausea and vomiting all of a sudden. Anything that somebody says all of a sudden, I'm starting to think about the vasculature and the vasculature in the brain. And I always try to ask people, what were you doing when this started? Whatever it is. And if they can tell me exactly what they were doing or what time it was, that to me sounds like a sudden onset. And a sudden onset, again, makes me think of the vasculature. The really important part of this is that we need to think about posterior stroke. Well, Evie, before we even have this bounce back visit, I want to take you real quickly to the bedside here. And I'm going to give you two scenarios, some patients that make me a little bit nervous. So let me just give you a 76-year-old patient who has a history of AFib. They've had a stroke in the past, and they present... And they say, I woke up this morning, I rolled over, had a sudden onset of vertigo, the room was spinning. Every time I turn my head since then, I have like one minute of vertigo symptoms. When I'm not turning my head, it's completely resolved. I have no pain in my head. I have no numbness or weakness of the extremities. In other words, any focal neurologic symptoms. So for that patient who has a concerning past history, but who has almost like a textbook BPPV history, 
for me, that bedside evaluation is good. I'm not doing neuroimaging on that patient. I'm, of course, making sure that I have a really good story on that one. This is not the patient to maximize my throughput numbers on. Do you think that that's a reasonable way to approach a patient with a higher pretest risk, but who has a classic story for BPPV? The key, Mike, is when you said that the symptoms resolved in between. This guy woke up, he rolled over, he had symptoms, but then when he was supine again or, or in between those symptoms, it completely resolved. That's the key. That is a triggered vestibular syndrome, and it's most likely going to be BPPV. So yeah, I would agree with you there. But as you said, I'm really going to dig into the story and ask him to tell me, describe it, and verify, because some people just aren't good historians. Yeah, and I like the way that they did with this case that we're talking about today, where they had the patient walk and some of those other sort of things, very, very important to do. And I have to say that from some of the medical legal work that I've done, that history of present illness, that free data that we get from just talking to the patient is oftentimes way too sparse. And the onset, whether it's sudden onset of a headache or sudden onset of chest pain or even sudden onset of abdominal pain, the onset arguably is one of the most important questions to ask in the HPI, and I so frequently see that it is not done. So let me give you scenario number two. Now we have a patient who is 40 years old, is a healthy patient, maybe they're like some sort of extreme great athlete, marathon runner, et cetera, et cetera, and they present with vertigo, which was present when they woke up. This is more of a constant type of vertigo, but again, it's isolated vertigo. There are no neurologic symptoms or signs. They don't have any preceding URI type of symptoms. And they tell you that it's worse when they turn their head, but the symptoms are constant. And again, they don't really have a defined onset. So much lower pretest risk patient as far as them walking in the door, but the story is a little bit more concerning. How far do you go with the workup on this patient without any other neurologic symptoms or signs whatsoever? It's easy with this patient to get thrown off by the fact that he's 40 years old and otherwise healthy. That's something that we are starting to see. Actually, I think we're starting to see this more and more. Young people having stroke and posterior stroke because we're seeing vertebral artery dissection and they don't come with great stories. They don't say, I was on a roller coaster yesterday and I had some neck pain. These are oftentimes just the symptoms of the stroke without the preceding story. And young, healthy people don't expect to have a stroke, so they're not really helping you with the story. This patient I'm going to dig into because you gave me the clues. It was not relenting. It was persistent. And one of the things when you talk about the sudden onset nature of the symptoms, I like to ask the patient, when were you last without these symptoms? Was it yesterday? Was it six hours ago? And then tell me about when you started. Because if you take them back to when they weren't having the symptoms, then that oftentimes helps them to remember, oh yeah, it was when I was um, sitting in front of the TV doing nothing, and all of a sudden, I felt this dizziness. So Evie, are you ready for the actual bounce back visit here? We've been like talking so much beforehand, and uh, I, I don't want to leave the listener hanging. Do you want me to whisper? <laughs> as the as the expert whisperer, <laughs> so you're going to say really smart stuff and very quietly. So, so our story here starts where our OSU conference that was on the you know October 2010 MRAP, where that conference left off with our return visit, and now this patient comes back. The patient was initially seen 
on a Monday. They come back on a Wednesday at 10.47 a.m. At this point, they don't just have that vertigo and vomiting, but now they have weakness, slurred speech, ataxia, a left facial droop, left arm weakness, left leg weakness. In other words, Evie, even for a very simple guy like me, I'm going to be concerned about this patient. This is not a diagnostic dilemma here. We have a patient who certainly, without a doubt, their presentation is asking the question, do I have a stroke? And of course, we'll find out that they do. So what I want to do is take our listener to the bedside. We have a 51-year-old woman, diabetic patient. She was there two days ago for vertigo, got sent home with a diagnosis of BPPV, and now returns with absolute stroke symptoms. So let me just ask you a couple questions as far as your initial evaluation of that patient. Say that you know this patient's coming in, you get a good report from EMS, you're meeting them in the hallway and going to send them straight to CT. What are the things that you're doing in the hallway with that patient? Are you doing an AccuCheck? Are you checking a blood pressure? Because that might determine if they're a candidate for systemic thrombolytics. Are you establishing last known well? Are you doing your NIH stroke scale? Again, while they're in the hallway, are we getting an IV started? What are the things that you're doing and how fast you're getting them straight from that hallway while the paramedics are, are sort of tapping on their watches before you get them over to CT scan? Coming in the door, if I haven't already gotten a call in from EMS with the story and the finger stick glucose, I'm getting that while I'm looking at the patient and asking myself, does she have a large vessel occlusion? Does she have a stroke? So they're telling me the story. They're telling me what their finger stick was. The nurse is probably getting another finger stick right away. And I'm, yes, getting a blood pressure and vital signs that will be helpful if I think the patient's going to get thrombolytics. But I'm doing a very straightforward and simple neuro exam. This isn't the time for the complete NIH stroke scale, but I'm doing a straightforward. Can they lift their arms and hold them up? Do they have a facial droop? Can they smile? And are they able to move? all arms and legs. It's pretty straightforward. The question in my mind is, I know they're going off to CT to get a non-contrast CT to figure out if they have a bleed, but I want to know if they have a large vessel occlusion because that changes the game. So let me give you a little timeline on our specific patient. She woke up at 4 a.m. with symptoms and her last known normal was when she went to bed around midnight. Now it's 1047 in the morning. So she's pretty much out of the thrombolytic window. So this is very basic for our listeners, but of course, we're not waiting for a creatinine level to come back. We're going to get a non-contrast head CT as well as CTA head and neck, looking for any type of vascular dissection in the neck, as well as obviously large vessel occlusion, LVO type of findings that we have on our CT scan. So would you agree those would be the test to order, no perfusion, and we're not waiting even one second to try to figure out their renal function? Absolutely. Just as in the trauma patient, we don't wait for the creatinine to use contrast on that CT. This one, time is really important. So I'm not waiting for a creatinine. And I'm going to get that CT non-contrast for sure. But if I'm thinking about a large vessel occlusion, I'm also going to order a CTA. And then how far are you going out with last known normal? 24 hours, 12 hours, as far as the LVO. So assuming that we're past the systemic thrombolytic window of just, for example, four and a half hours, only doing a non-con head scan versus CTA head and CTA neck. It's an interesting question, Mike. I'm going out 24 hours because there are so many interesting cases where you can have a basilar artery thrombus 
You can have a large vessel occlusion. And once you get the advanced imaging, you figure out that they have a very small necrotic core, but a large penumbra. The opportunities that we have for these stroke patients with advanced imaging have expanded so rapidly that I am taking it out 24 hours because I don't want to miss an opportunity. Now I'm going to give you another one of those fish or cut bait moments. So the patient we have, this 51-year-old woman, obviously has pretty significant and dense type of stroke symptoms. How about the patient, and uh, again, the fish or cut bait here, you know, you have the 30-year-old with some numbness of their left hand and left foot. Their stroke scale, you're sort of guessing, is probably going to be zero. Do you go out 24 hours with that patient also? Is there a number below which you're probably not going to find an LVO? Mike, as the emergency physician initially seeing this patient, I'm not thinking about the numbers on the NIH stroke scale. As a matter of fact, I'm not really even thinking about the stroke scale because if I do that, I'm only thinking about anterior stroke. You can have a pretty significant posterior stroke that has an NIH stroke scale of zero, and I don't want to miss those. So I'm not even thinking about that score. I'm thinking about the history and the story and when this started and whether or not this could possibly be a vascular event or a large vessel occlusion. We had just mentioned briefly, I'm going to read through a list of some possible stroke mimics, although there are more than this. Migraine, hypoglycemia, seizure with you know, Todd's paralysis, you know, sepsis or syncope, a mass lesion, a you know, patient with a panic attack, you know, conversion disorder, which we're obviously not making a diagnosis of in the ED, alcohol intoxication. I've seen patients called for stroke alerts when they turn out to be super drunk. So, you know, something important to consider. So that initial assessment is going to be usually they go straight to CT, but there could be, and we want the paramedics to have a pretty broad net that they're casting. So I'm cool with them having a stroke alert pre-rival called, but that doesn't necessarily oblige us always to doing that CT if it so obviously turns out to be something else. So before we actually find out what these clinicians did with this patient and then move on to our next decision point, let me give you one other question here. With a patient who does have just isolated vertigo, now that's not the patient we're talking about, they have isolated vertigo, are you calling up to 24 hours a stroke alert on that patient? My question really is, for a posterior circulation stroke, is there benefit to making a diagnosis of stroke or LVO quickly with that type of patient? Good question, and absolutely there is. So here, think about it this way. You get that young person, that 30-year-old who came in with a sudden onset of dizziness, nausea, vomiting, and let's say you even did the full neuro exam and their NIH stroke scale is zero, but you're wondering what's going on. Think about dissection. If somebody has a dissection in the vertebral artery, that doesn't mean that the artery is closed off. It means that the lumen has narrowed. That narrowing of the lumen can decrease the blood flow to that part of the brain and cause symptoms. And so if that's happening, what's eventually going to happen is with the narrowed lumen, you may get a thrombus. And then you'll have a sudden onset of clear and true stroke symptoms. And if that lumen narrows enough that it causes or creates a thrombus, now you're going to have an increase in your stroke signs. But before that, you may have 
stuttering symptoms. You're going to have decreased perfusion. Just think of that lumen being narrowed and think of how it will affect that part of the brain. And it may just affect it with the symptoms of nausea, vomiting, vertigo, whatever you want to call it. But eventually, if it clots off, now you're going to have increased symptoms. Or if part of the clot that forms doesn't completely block the vertebral artery, but flicks off downstream to the basal artery, now you're going to have a basal artery stroke. So I absolutely think about these symptoms in terms of a stroke alert, because the sooner we can catch something such as a vertebral artery dissection, the better options we have to treat that. Summary. So to summarize, we all dread the patient who presents with a chief complaint of dizziness. And one of the reasons is because it can be tough to tell between posterior circulation stroke and peripheral vertigo, something very bad from something not so bad. Part of telling the difference lies in the history, getting a good history about the onset of the symptoms, which will be all of a sudden in patients who have a vascular etiology, and in those patients, the symptoms will be persistent, meaning they don't go away, versus peripheral vertigo where their symptoms are triggered. They have head movement, they feel awful, they stop moving, they can find a position where they don't have the symptoms. That is characteristic of peripheral vertigo. So teasing this out in the history is very important. Certainly risk factors play a role, but can't be 100% relied upon. Evie and Mike talk about what do you do in the hallway when you're about to send a patient who you've called a code stroke on to CT scan? What are the essential things to get done? Number one, consider stroke mimics. Check a finger stick glucose. Make sure that's not what you're dealing with. Do a very quick, focused, rapid neuro exam, thinking about whether this patient might have a large vessel occlusion. You're not doing an NIH stroke scale exam at this point, of course. And remember, the NIH stroke scale does not pick up on posterior strokes very well. You can have an NIH stroke score of zero and have someone who has a posterior stroke. Stick around for part two, where Evie and Mike pick up where they left off with our case, as well as talk about some great pearls in stroke management and the medical legal aspects of what we do with stroke. Part two is going to rattle your otoliths. Just rattle them right out of your inner ear. That's right. I'm all for making things faster and more straightforward in the ED, especially when it comes to procedures. Brit Long. That's the voice of Brit Long, and he is here with Tim Montreef, emergency physician and critical care fellow in Pittsburgh. Tim is here to share some pearls about central line placement and ultrasound. And I'm not talking about just seeing the needle tip during your placement of the line, but for some other parts after you've placed the line. Tim, normally we use x-ray to confirm placement of a central line and also look for some complications like a pneumothorax. What are your big issues with x-ray and where does ultrasound fit into central line placement for you beyond just seeing that tip of the needle? The biggest role ultrasound can play when confirming central line placement is time. We know that chest x-rays take a long time after you place a central line, sometimes up to 60 minutes. And if we're placing a central line, we want to use it. We have a sick patient that needs medications, needs infusions, and point-of-care ultrasound can speed up our time to placement as well as our time to using the line, usually about two to three minutes. Ultrasound is fast, 
but it's also very reliable with a high sensitivity and specificity for confirming central line placement. And finally, it's very cheap. It usually costs pennies compared to about $150 for your average chest x-ray. You had mentioned ultrasound being reliable and accurate and definitely faster than x-ray. But one of the reasons we get an x-ray is to check line placement. We're all taught that the tip of the catheter needs to be in that lower portion of the superior vena cava before we can actually start using the line. Is this still the right view or is it time to change our perspective on this? I think it's time to change our practice. Looking at the available data, there's no clear evidence on the optimal position for a central line. Malpositioned lines in the brachiocephalic vein or the subclavian vein are very well tolerated and can be used safely. The only exception is if you have a central line going through the IJ pointing towards the head. That's definitely a game changer when it comes to positioning, and it's looking like ultrasound definitely has a win over x-ray so far. Tim, let's get to actually how you do this procedure step by step. How do I use ultrasound after I've placed the line? The first thing I like to do is look for a pneumothorax. Take your linear probe and evaluate for pleural lung sliding on both sides of the chest. Next, I take that same linear probe and look at the internal jugular veins and make sure I don't have a malpositioned central line pointing towards the head. Finally, I make sure that the central line is in the venous system by doing a bubble study. I feel step one is pretty easy. It's something we do on a fairly routine basis. We're looking for that lung sliding. And if we're not seeing that, we need to be concerned about a pneumothorax. For step two with the misdirected catheter, if I placed a line in the right IJ, I'm going to look at the left IJ with the linear probe. And if I see a catheter in the left IJ, I'll probably have to remove that line. I don't feel as comfortable with step three, which is the bubble study. How do I perform a bubble study? And you're going to have to keep this simple. The first step of a bubble study consists of taking a saline flush, just like the ones that come in a central line kit, and agitating it, either by shaking or mixing the syringe back and forth. Then, connect that agitated saline flush onto the central line's distal port while taking a look at the right heart with an ultrasound, either in the apical forechamber or subcostal view. Finally, you flush the agitated saline hopefully seeing little agitated saline bubbles go into the right heart on ultrasound. If you see these micro bubbles within about two seconds, you can be pretty confident that the catheter is in the SVC. That seems straightforward. I mean, this is definitely within our wheelhouse. And the best part about these three steps is that once you've done this, sure, we're going to get the x-ray, but you can start using the line before the x-ray is done. Tim, the one final question I have, and what might be on the minds of our listeners who might be heading into their next shift, is what's the evidence behind these three steps, and is this something that we can do on a routine basis in the emergency department? Point-of-care ultrasound for confirming central lines is ready for prime time. One meta-analysis included 15 studies and over 1,500 central line placements found that a positive bubble study was 98% specific for central line placement in the vein with a sensitivity of 82%. The same meta-analysis also found that ultrasound reduced the time to confirm central line placement by an hour compared to chest x-ray. And when it comes to looking at our complications, we know that point-of-care ultrasound performs well. One study identified all complications associated with central line placement, mainly misplaced lines and pneumothorax. And a meta-analysis in 2014 
looking at pneumothorax, found a specificity and sensitivity approaching 100% for point-of-care ultrasound. But where point-of-care ultrasound really shines is in those patients who have tricky anatomy, especially a persistent left-sided SVC. Looking just at the chest radiograph, you may be fooled into thinking that your properly placed central line is lying within the aorta, where a point-of-care ultrasound will show you exactly where it is with the bubble study in the venous system. Summary. We have three steps after you've placed a central line. First, look for a pneumothorax. Second, look for a malpositioned catheter. And third, use the bubble study. Finally, we'll be sure to have some images and videos available in the show notes. Also be sure to check out MRAPHG. Jess Mason has a fantastic video showing the agitated saline test. Thanks for listening, and hopefully these three steps get you to using that central line faster. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, Rick's Rats! Let's state a few well-known facts. Number one, urgent cares are going to reduce the number of patients that come to the emergency department. Fact. Fact number two, telemedicine is significantly going to reduce the number of patients that come to the urgent cares and therefore to the emergency department. Fact three, retail clinics are going to be ubiquitous and they are absolutely going to crush primary care and urgent care and the world as we know it. Well, Rick is going to go into all of those assumptions to see if you are assuming correctly. But before he does, he would like to say a few words about what's been happening on Rick's rants in the last few months and how sad it's made him. Hi, it's Rick Picotta. Time for the rant of the month. But don't expect any conversation this month about PAs or nurse practitioners or the ASEP workforce study or those mean contract management groups or anything about staffing in the emergency department because our conversations on those topics are ending now, at least for the time being. I want to thank all of you who have sent in emails to me and to others, generally not agreeing with our point of view. Some of you have been quite charitable. Others have been kind of mean, but I still enjoyed the back and forth between us in these uh, emails. I want to thank my guests who appeared on uh, these rants. Thanks so much for your uh, time, talent, and expertise. But now we're going to move on, and maybe we'll pick this up later. I, I'm glad we had the opportunity to do it. I'm glad we had the opportunity to present the various points of view on this. It is not easy. This is a very hot topic. It is, um, it's frankly the elephant in the room. It's frankly the, the future of emergency medicine. So I'm glad we got a start on it at least, but now we're going to move on to something simple, urgent care centers. So I saw this article. It was entitled, Urgent Care Centers Deter Some Emergency Department Visits, But on Net Increase Spending. So let me do that again because it's a long title. Urgent care centers deter some emergency department visits, but on net increased spending. This is a study done by Bill Wang and colleagues out of Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania. The April 2021 issue of Health Affairs, which is the super snooty journal that focuses on medical policy and finance, they make it virtually impossible to get a copy of uh, any of their papers. I used every trick in the book and all I could look at was at the abstract and an article written by Ruth Sorrell in Emergency Medicine News on the same uh, article. This was the cover story in the August issue of Emergency Medicine News. In any case, by way of background, there are 9,000 urgent care centers about, give or take, 
They saw about 90 million visits in 2018. ER saw about 130 million visits that year. So ERs are still the big kahuna when it comes to episodic care. But everybody's saying, please get these expensive visits out of the emergency department and get them into urgent care or retail clinics or something like that because it's just too expensive. Well, how expensive was it? Well, using an insurance company database, they calculated that one low acuity visit was worth $1,646 in terms of, I guess, what they were charged or paid or something like that, the insurance company. I don't think most emergency physicians have any idea the magnitude of ER charges. Like, what is an, a bag of saline cost or an ECG or a Tylenol? What do they cost? But the offset was for every low acuity visit that was able to be pulled out of an ER even if it was $1,646, the insurance company paid for 37 additional visits because everybody and their uncle was going to the urgent care center for very minor visits. And the total paid by the insurance company for the 37 visits was $6,327. So there's a huge amount of additional visits going to urgent care centers because the access is just so easy. I saw a study that said 85% of people go to an urgent care center are out within an hour. They're advertising. They want you to come. Do ERs advertise that they want you to come? No, they don't want you to come. But urgent care centers do. They advertise that they're open nights, weekends, holidays. They're going to be open when you want to be seen. You don't have to miss any work. You can go in for that cough that's been bugging you for a few days. And there you go. And Although that urgent care center visit's only going to cost $171. That's what the average came out to be. There's so many of them that the insurance company wound up paying a lot more because people are going to urgent care centers for stuff that is really minor that they probably would have never gone to an emergency department for. So the net is it's more expensive to go to the uh, urgent care centers in totality of all the visits. Let me jump in here for a second because I'm no healthcare economy expert, but these kind of studies, I don't really know what they mean. So there's a lot of urgent cares. And uh, then you sort of go through databases and you come up and you say, well, you reduced ER visits by one out of every 37 people that go to the urgent care. But is that true? I mean, you really need to do sort of a randomized trial to work that out, like have a universe where there are urgent cares and a universe where there are ERs and then look at, you know, what people do. Because I actually see that it's primary care that's going to get more affected by urgent cares than emergency departments, which perhaps is a paradox because I'm going to go to the urgent care to get a COVID shot. I'm going to go to the urgent care to get my flu shot. I'm going to go to the urgent care to maybe get a prescription because I'm going overseas and I need some um, anti-malarials. I'm not going to go to my primary care doc because it's a pain in the butt. They're never open. I'm not going to go to the emergency department because I'm not bleeding to death. So I think actually the comparison or the consideration should be around what do urgent cares do to primary care, not so much emergency department care. I don't know. This just a thought. Well, what about telemedicine? That surely should be cheap. But even there, there are some issues. This is an article out of Health Affairs, April of uh, 2021, conducted at the University of Michigan, looked at direct-to-consumer telemedicine. That's where you can call up a doctor any time of the day and talk to that doctor about your baby's fever. Talk about access. And people are being encouraged by insurance companies, please call the uh, uh, telemedicine, call the telemedicine. Call them before you go to urgent care even. The study that was done, however, at the University of Michigan, although they didn't calculate dollars, they calculated utilization. And people who had a telemedicine visit were more likely to have downstream more follow-up visits, whether it be to an urgent care center or a, another telemedicine visit or a retail clinic, 
more of them than if you were initially seen by a, a clinician. Now, I don't know that you would necessarily intuit that, but I think you could. So when you just look at the initial visits, yeah, that's cheaper. But when you look at downstream, there was more visits, almost almost double for those people who were seen initially by a telemedicine visit. So again, what appears to be kind of straightforward, it turns out to be not exactly the way we thought. Okay, again, I don't understand the methodology here. And in fact, we're going to have to get a methodology expert on this to talk about this stuff because it is fascinating. But the idea is that if you've got a telemedicine visit, for a lot of simple things, that's all you're going to need. You're just going to need a doc there. It's going to look at your rash and say, you're fine, you can go home and no further follow-up required. This study is suggesting that that may not be true. And in fact, the opposite may be true. But I can't think of a good reason why that is. Even if I completely screwed up the telemedicine visit, I saw you and I completely got it wrong. And you subsequently followed up and they said, Mel's an idiot. You've really got, uh, you know, cancer, not uh, a sore throat. Why would that increase the number of visits? I just can't get my head around that. I can see it not reducing them, but I don't know why it would increase the number of visits. What about the retail clinics? I think these are really the sleeping giants. So people say 20 to 30% of the uh, ER visits are able to be pulled out and go to other sites of care. That's the whole idea is get them to a cheaper place, please. Even if it was 20%, that is believed to be worth $4.4 billion a year. A year, every year, $4.4 billion. Where is that $4.4 billion coming from? It's coming from money that would have gone to emergency departments. So when you're charging $1,600 a visit for minor visits, that marginal visit is worth a very big deal to the emergency departments because they're doing very little and they're getting paid $1,600. Before I get into the specifics of a study, 38,000 pharmacies are run by 25 retail pharmacy chains, 38,000 pharmacies employing 149,000 pharmacists. The most important fact in this entire database, 89% of the U.S. population lives within five miles of a retail pharmacy, 89%. CVS has 9,955 stores. Can you believe that? 9,955. Walmart has 4,674 in the United States. Walmart just recently got licensed to provide care in 17 additional states. So it originally had 20. It's now going up to 37 states it can provide care in. Walmart's deal, they're going to do telemedicine. Telemedicine is going to drive urgent care. And urgent care is going to be not just urgent care. It's going to be primary care. I saw a sign recently on a Walgreen, and underneath the name Walgreen, it said primary care. And that was in Arizona. And it was like, primary care? Yes, that's what they want. They don't want your intermittent splinter going into the urgent care. They want your high blood pressure, your diabetes, your high cholesterol. So they want to go for not just urgent care cases and the episodic care. They want the routine care with the follow-up. That's where they're headed. And the sleeping giants... Geez, you could build out a clinic in a Walmart, you know, probably in, what, two weeks? Probably don't need any permits, just a few few walls here and there. And the next thing you know, you've got a minute clinic of sorts in a, in a Walmart. 4,674 of them. Now, are these going to go into everyone? You know, probably, probably not. But they are the sleeping giant. Walmart just acquired a large telemedicine program and I think that this is just the beginning of them waking up. Up until now, CVS has been way ahead, but 
watch out for Walmart. And it's all about primary care. It's not about urgent care. That's just to get you in the door the first time. Wouldn't you love to get your, uh, you know, your cholesterol checked and uh, go down to the uh, CVS and get your cholesterol checked if you know you have high cholesterol? No sweat. Try to do that with your family doctor's office. Well, here's the report by Rand involving retail clinics. The title of the report is The Evolving Role of Retail Clinics, Rand Corporation. You know, it's this, th- this big think tank. It helps you kind of come up with the right answers. They looked at four aspects of retail clinics, the locations, the quality, the customers that they served, and the effects on healthcare spending. Here are their conclusions. Young adults and those without a regular care provider are typical users of retail clinics. Ages, 18 to 44, which is almost a millennial. Millennials is 23 to 38. So those are the folks who are going to the uh, urgent cares. Overall, the retail clinics are not improving care to the underserved because only one in eight of them are in an area that is considered underserved. I mean, most of them are in, you know, suburban and more urban areas, and they're not in areas that are considered underserved medically. Retail clinics provide care that is equivalent to the quality provided by physicians' offices and emergency departments. Now, listen, don't beat me up. I'm just reading here. <laughs> you know, I've seen actually a bunch of studies that also claim that, but the... Uh, Rand Corporation says retail clinics can provide equivalent care uh, that provided by physicians' offices and emergency department. Here's one. Retail clinics have not led to any substantial decline in emergency department visits. This idea we're going to pull them off and ER visits going to go down. No, people are still going to the ER. The realization that they don't have to and there's other options. There's still lots and lots of growth for these places that are advertising looking for business. One last point. Contrary to expectations, retail clinics increased healthcare spending per person per year. Retail clinics increased healthcare spending per person per year. Now, it was only $14, but retail clinics by no means decreased healthcare spending by the insurance companies. And whether they pass that on to you, God knows, but that's, that's the point. The reason I wanted to discuss these three studies is because each of them intuitively took something that you would think to be the answer and just turned the answer around. Did retail clinics save money on these cases? No. Did telemedicine? Well, when you looked at it downstream, it was not nearly as cost-effective as you may think. All of these, you have to look more carefully. And the whole basic idea here is we are men and women of science. When we took an article, we have to look at it with a, a try to be unbiased, uh, get rid of our presupposed c- conclusions, and look more carefully, and each of these articles kind of are examples of studies that kind of are not what we would have intuited, but are supported by substantial data. And I think that um, that's kind of the lesson I'm trying to convey here, that we have to be scientists and careful and not biased. And even though something is intuitively, that's going to be the answer. In these three studies, it wasn't. I would consider this a primer because we really do need to get an expert here. Um, but your assumptions, our assumptions, may not be correct. Urgent cares may not significantly reduce emergency department visits. Telemedicine might not significantly reduce urgent care visits or emergency department visits. Healthcare is a bizarre thing. The more you offer it, the more gets consumed. And that's why a for-profit system here in the US is very expensive, but doesn't necessarily show better outcomes. In fact, you know, often worse outcomes than systems that are not for-profit. And the way I think about all this discussion is in two ways. One is from the healthcare worker point of view. 
what is the best way to give the best care to the greatest number of people? And also, how does that affect my profession, my part of this, whether I'm in primary care, whether I'm in emergency care? Is the, you know, the sands, are they moving under my feet? Do I have to get ready to do a new thing? Because things, they are changing. We've been talking a lot about that in the last few months. But I also think about it from a consumer point of view. I might not want Walmart to take over primary care as a physician, but I can tell you, I want to go to the urgent care. I don't want to go to the emergency department. I don't want to go to my primary care doctor's office because they're always behind. It's really hard to get in. They've got crappy hours. I want to go to Target and get my flu shot, my COVID shot. I want to check my cholesterol and maybe get uh, some labs drawn because they do it fast. It's quick and it's right down the road and they have great hours. And while I'm there, I'm going to pick up some chips and maybe some uh, Swedish fish. It's not healthy, but hey, that's what I want to do. So I think from uh, the physician's point of view, we need to start thinking both ways. How do we do this well, but also how do we uh, skate to where the puck is going? And the puck is going to the fact that people want to have stuff that's done faster and with better hours. And traditional medicine, the doc in the little clinic, uh, has not been that way. And Rick talked a lot about how many pharmacies there are and how many pharmacists. And guess who else wants to get into the pharmacy business? Jeff Bezos. And you know what's better than going down to the target pharmacy to pick up your prescription? Getting it on Amazon and having it delivered. Again, this is not necessarily the best thing in the world, but that's how I want to get my stuff. So I'm a little tortured by it all. Okay, we'll talk more soon. So that's it. No more <laughs> stuff where you can attack me. I do want to hear from you. Send me an email. I answer them all. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Rex Rats! Kids may not be small adults, but many pediatricians are. Ladies and gentlemen, the not-so-short Dr. Eileen Claudius with some pediatric pearls. Whenever we have a child come in intoxicated with marijuana, whether it's by report from the parents or something that we discover in the ED, the residents always have great questions for me, and I don't always know the answers. So today I've asked one of the residents, Joey Friedrich, to join me, as well as Melissa Jimenez, who is a child abuse pediatrician and the assistant director of our hub clinic at Harbor, and I'm going to have him fire some of these great questions at her so that we can all get the answers. Melissa, thank you for joining us, and can I ask you to just start by talking in general about how big of an issue this is? In California, at least where I practice, with the legalization of marijuana, kids have been having easier access to marijuana. They've done a couple of studies on the states that have decriminalized medical and recreational cannabis. And there was a particular study that was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine that looked at poison control and the number of calls before and after marijuana was decriminalized in those states. And they saw they increased by about 30% per year in those states where marijuana had been decriminalized, whereas they didn't change at all in the states where marijuana was still illegal. So from a reporting standpoint, when should we be reporting marijuana ingestion in a child? And I guess for that matter, does it matter in states where marijuana is illegal versus legal? So I don't think it's very different in the states where it's legal versus the states where it's illegal. I kind of look at it as like alcohol intoxication. So yeah, you're going to have teenagers who take alcohol or marijuana and get intoxicated. But 
you still shouldn't have young kids intoxicated by marijuana or alcohol in states where it's legal. So for us, I always recommend in kids that are under the age of 10, if you have access to a suspected child abuse and neglect team, that you contact them if the kid is under 10, just because under that age, it's more likely to be unintentional. You know, I don't like to make blanket statements about whether or not you need to report every single case. But in general, if you talk to a child abuse pediatrician, especially depending on the age, the younger, the more likely you're going to be talking to Child Protective Services in your state. According to child abuse reporting laws kind of across the board, you just have to have a reasonable suspicion for abuse or neglect. And I think if you have a two-year-old who comes in under the influence of marijuana, then that is a reasonable suspicion And when we do these reports, what is the response that that family can expect from Child Protective Services? Obviously, it's dependent on whatever city or state you're living in. So I can only speak to my experience in Los Angeles County. And in general, when you make a referral to DCFS in Los Angeles County, it'll go one of two routes. One, it'll get evaluated out and there will just be a little note in the system that someone called in a referral, but it didn't meet the criteria for abuse or neglect. So a referral wasn't generated or a referral is generated. In the cases of marijuana exposure in general, what will happen is they will open a case for either immediate response if there are other concerns for abuse or a five-day response where the family can expect a DCFS worker to either call or meet them at their house to do a house check. Now, sometimes parents come in with a concern because they know that their child ate an edible containing marijuana. I had one parent come in screaming at her son because he was two and she had told him not to eat her gummy bears and shockingly he ate a gummy bear. But sometimes we just have a child come in with altered mental status and we have to figure out that it's from a marijuana ingestion. So what are some tips on history and physical exam that would make this a potential diagnosis? So I think in any kid who comes in with altered mental status, you're going to want to keep a possible ingestion, whether it's marijuana or something else in mind. The two most common presentations for marijuana are lethargy and ataxia. So if you have a kid who's lethargic, who's ataxic, you're going to probably want to do a urine drug screen. You know, marijuana ingestion can present in a lot of different ways. They can have the altered mental status, ataxia, somnolence, fussiness, agitation, very rarely coma, respiratory insufficiency, nausea, vomiting, increased appetite, thirst, things like that. I would say in the younger kids, in my experience, it's typically more lethargy and ataxia. So you're going to want to keep that in mind. Yeah, the kid that was getting screamed at was very lethargic. And then when he woke up, he went through like several bags of spicy hot Cheetos. So pretty much exactly what you just described. You mentioned using a urine drug screen. So most hospitals, from my understanding, do have marijuana on a urine tox test. Is that going to be sensitive enough to pick up most of the cannabinoids that children are consuming if you have a high suspicion for it? Or is there other testing that we need? The urine drug screen is kind of our gold standard because it's easy to collect it. And also drug metabolites tend to be high in the urine, higher than the serum, allowing for longer detection times than the serum allows. So usually what they'll do is the immunoassay, which you can do large scale screening. It's rapid. Main disadvantage is that you can have false positives. So especially when there's children concerned, you're going to want to make sure that there's confirmatory testing. It's confirmed by gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy. And once you have that presumptive positive in a child, especially, you need to have that follow-up. One question I get a lot is, what if the parents smoke marijuana around the child? Obviously, that's not a fantastic idea, but it's probably less of a child protective services trigger 
could that child test positive because of passive exposure to exhaled marijuana smoke? They've had several studies that evaluated the possibility of testing positive for THC via passive inhalation. So through those studies, they determined it's highly unlikely for an individual to test positive by the urine immunoassay through passive exposure. It's just not sensitive enough. They do also have several studies looking at metabolites from secondhand and thirdhand exposure, but those are using ultra-high performance liquid chromatography, and they analyze that using tandem mass spectroscopy, and that's going to be way more than what we're doing for our typical urine drug screens. What do you mean by third-hand exposure? Let's say we're in a room and you're smoking marijuana and I'm inhaling it. That would be secondhand. Thirdhand would be whatever settles on your clothing and you carry your child and they're struggling you. That could lead to them getting some of the metabolites on them from thirdhand exposure. What if you walk down the beach in Venice Beach? What does that qualify as? Qualifies as a good time, bro. Hey, let's go to Mao's, man. I mean, I don't know at what point it becomes firsthand with the amount of smoke you're inhaling. Yeah, second and a half. Yeah. Yeah, a half. So what about breastfeeding mothers? Should they worry that they're possibly able to transmit THC or components of marijuana through the breast milk? My advice is to not smoke marijuana and breastfeed. Someone might also be tempted to pump and dump, but that's also very difficult because the THC stays in fat for longer. So pumping and dumping isn't going to work. There is unfortunately limited research on breastfeeding and marijuana, including the amount of THC that's in the breast milk, the length of time it remains in there, the effects on the infants. The kind of working idea that we have is that since THC is stored in fat and infants have a higher percentage of fat, when a mom uses marijuana and breastfeeds, you could possibly see things such as lethargy, less frequent feeds, shorter feeding times. There was another study that looked at marijuana use daily in breastfeeding and they thought it might delay gross motor, but not growth or intellectual development. It's on healthychildren.org. There's a thing on breastfeeding and marijuana. And it actually says in here, are pediatricians mandated to report mothers who are using marijuana while pregnant or breastfeeding to Child Protective Services? And it says yes. I will say, though, there are laws within each state and county. And California doesn't have a specific one for reporting if it's just one time positive drug. Is the breastfed child potentially going to have a positive urine tox screen for marijuana? We can't say for sure because they haven't done any studies. You mentioned THC being stored in the fat, and certainly with our chronic smokers, they can have a positive urine tox screen for quite some time. What about a child who had a one-time ingestion? How long would we expect the urine tox to be positive in that child? Three to seven days is what you would expect for a one-time exposure to end up in the urine. So if we're using urine tox screens to evaluate these children with altered mental statuses who maybe potentially had a marijuana exposure, do you have any stories or times you've experienced false positives for other things? I have, yeah. So something that's come up in the past was a methamphetamine being positive for a mom on a urine drug screen after she had used a VIX inhaler those little VIX inhalers that have menthol, those contain levomethamphetamine. So that can cause a positive on the urine drug screen, which then would be a negative on the gas chromatography because you wouldn't find any D-methamphetamine. Another thing we see is fentanyl. There's concerns for fentanyl exposure that could give you a false negative on the urine drug screen. Some of the opioids that come up are codeine, heroin, things like that, but you wouldn't see fentanyl come up on a urine drug screen. You would have to test for it separately. Are all hospitals sending out these presumptive positives for confirmatory testing? Let's say a two-year-old shows up and is positive for marijuana on the drug screen. We will make sure that confirmatory testing confirmed that it was indeed marijuana and not something else that tested positive because you can have things like ibuprofen sometimes cause a false positive for THC. 
One of these weird urban legends, maybe it's not an urban legend, you tell me, is that poppy seeds, like if you have a poppy seed bagel for breakfast, that can cause you to come up positive for opioids on the urine tox screen. Is that true? And how much poppy seed do you have to eat before that happens? Yeah, it is true. So you need about a teaspoon of poppy seeds. It's like an everything bagel. <laughs> I know. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <It's> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have that everything but the bagel that I put From on Trader top Joe's. of the cream cheese. Yeah, on top of an everything bagel. So, I mean, if you get hardcore about it, you might end up testing false positive for it. We'll test you next time we see you. Any other tips, tricks, pearls you have before we close? I had a marijuana ingestion that was a 14-year-old girl who she made her mom bring her to the emergency room because she tried marijuana for the first time in her life and she wanted to clean. That's all she wanted to do was clean the house. And she was so scared of what must have happened because she hated cleaning. And she thought something must be really wrong with her. It must be bad marijuana to make her want to clean the house. All right. Now that you've told that story, I am going to go feed all of my children marijuana and just see if any one of them have that same effect, because that would be absolutely amazing. Okay, right now I'm just waiting for the- Dear MRAP, how can you condone- She's joking. Oh, did you- Everybody just calm down. Okay, fine. A couple weeks ago, we had a what we called an MCI, a mass cannabinoid ingestion, where a bunch of third graders brought some edibles to school, and then we had three very stoned children show up about two hours later. I think the edibles is the big thing, because sometimes when you see the packaging, it just looks so attractive to children. And it's bright colors, and it's gummies, and they love gummy bears, and they don't know what's in it. And they might eat more than what you would expect. And you know that it takes a while for the edibles to kick in. It takes like 30, 60 minutes, and then the peaks like, what, three or four hours later. So depending, you know, on how much they eat at once, they can have some profound effects. Thank you so much. This has been really informative and helpful to streamline sort of my approach to the kid who may be a marijuana ingestion. Summary. Legalization of marijuana has allowed children to have easier access to this drug. From a reporting standpoint, think of marijuana in a similar way to alcohol in the sense that teenagers will have exposures to this, of course, as they explore the world. But kids under the age of 10 in particular who come in with a suspected marijuana intoxication should concern you. And of course, this might be child neglect and so should be reported via your local policies and protocols to the team that you normally would report such things to. Marijuana intoxication in children most commonly presents as lethargy and ataxia. But you might see other signs and symptoms like somnolence, even agitation, nausea, vomiting, fussiness respiratory insufficiency, or increased thirst and hunger. Urine drug screens should be sent in cases of altered mental status, of course, and if marijuana intoxication is suspected and comes back positive, remember that there can be false positives, so confirmatory testing should be pursued. Thanks to Eileen Claudius and her team for putting this piece together. Very informative. Let's run through it again. Okay. Okay, first-hand exposure is if I'm getting high. Got it. My own supply. Okay. Okay. Second-hand exposure is if you're getting high off my supply. Okay. Meaning I'm exhaling it and you're inhaling it. That's second-hand. Yeah. Third-hand exposure is if you put on my jacket and, like, there's stuff from my jacket that gets you high. Okay. Which I don't think is that possible. What about fourth-hand exposure? Is that like you reading about my jacket and then getting a contact high off of the pages that you're reading? I think so. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any total sense. Back on the show today is emergency physician, Corpendium section editor for the Hemonc chapter, 
and owner of the best last name in medicine, Dr. Sarah Dubb. Sarah Dubbs, long time since you've been on. Welcome back. Oh, thanks so much, Swami. It's so great to be back. Well, Dubs, we got a question from a listener on Blast Crisis, and this seemed to be right up your alley, which is why we've got you on here. So are you game for diving in? Totally game. Well, you know what they say, hematology, it's a blast. <laughs> I, I don't know anybody who's ever said that, but... it's They make mugs with it on. You can buy it on really? Amazon. <laughs> All right, well, then we're going to go with it. Hematology is a blast, but let's do a little bit of a definition because I haven't seen a ton of blast crisis recently, and I'm not sure exactly what we mean when we say that. Background. You know, starting basic with blast crisis, it's one of those times where the white blood cell count actually matters. So it occurs as a late stage progression of CML or chronic myelogenous leukemia. So one of the hematologic cancers. And it's defined by when you have more than 20% blasts in the peripheral blood or the bone marrow. And for us in the ED, it's always going to be the peripheral blood. Or it's also defined by possibly an extramedullary accumulation of blast cells, which basically means a bunch of blast cells causing a tumor within the lymph nodes, the spleen, or other areas of the body, even as far as the skin. Symptoms. What are the complications that occur in blast crisis? Because I think this dictates a little bit of what symptomology we might see coming into the emergency department. The reason that this acute phase of CML is so deadly really hinges on the fact that the blasts take up so much space. So they clog up the blood, they clog up the production lines of all the other cells, the RBCs and the platelets within the bone marrow, and this leads to all those major complications. So the number one complication that probably has the most obvious presentation to the ED is leukostasis. The second one is anemia or thrombocytopenia. Third is infection. And fourth is tumor lysis syndrome. So these can occur singly or they can occur in combination. Let's go through each of these complications kind of one at a time. Anemia thrombocytopenia. Anemia thrombocytopenia seems relatively easy. If they're bleeding with platelets under 50K, we transfuse. If platelets are below 10K, whether they're bleeding or not, we transfuse. For the anemia, do we have the typical approach of if the hemoglobin is less than seven, we give them blood, or is there a different kind of threshold or cutoff here? It is not that simple to reflexively transfuse blood if someone does have a low count in the situation. And the reason for that is because transfusing blood, especially in a patient who has a very, very, very high number of blasts within the peripheral bloodstream, can precipitate or exacerbate leukostasis. In terms of thrombocytopenia, this has not been shown in terms of transfusing platelets to precipitate or worsen leukostasis. So it's okay to transfuse platelets if they are less than 10 or even 20. The risk of a spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage in the case of acute blast phase CML is pretty high with uh, platelet count of less than 20. So you want to talk to hematology, you know, as soon as these patients really hit your door or you become cognizant of what's going on. But certainly you want to have a low threshold to transfuse those platelets for a level less than 10 to 20,000. But for red blood cells, you want to hold off if at all possible. So only transfuse if they're really, really symptomatic or if they're actively hemorrhaging. So this is a little bit different. If they are less than seven, but hemodynamically stable, 
wait, talk to your oncologist or hematologist, and then come up with a plan together of how you're going to transfuse that patient or not transfuse them. If they are hemodynamically unstable, actively bleeding, then we're going to do what we usually do. That makes sense. So there's a little bit of a difference there that we have to understand. A patient with a hemoglobin of six doesn't necessarily need to be transfused right away as long as their hemodynamics are okay. Now, you mentioned infection. These patients are immunocompromised. Do we need to treat them differently in terms of our antibiotic coverage for typical infections? So let's say that we have a patient with CML. They come in with a lot of blasts. They, we think they're in blast crisis. They've got fatigue. We find a pneumonia. Are we covering them with typical agents or is it something a little bit different? You want to definitely cover them with broad spectrum antibiotics. I don't know, you know who would even want to just throw a Z-pack at this in a very, very ill immunocompromised patient, but you want to cover broadly for sure. And you know, really have a low threshold of empirically starting antibiotics for any of these patients if there's any, any, any hint of an infection because they are so immunocompromised. Yes, their white blood cell count is super high, but they're functionally neutropenic. That last point is really important. Functionally neutropenic, which means in general, if these patients come in with that high white count, they have an infection, we're probably going to keep them in the hospital or at least in observation. These aren't necessarily the patients that we're going to send home with oral antibiotics, not because of the oral versus IV nature of the antibiotics, but more because they do need to be closely watched to make sure they don't decompensate. And like you said, you're probably going to need a broader spectrum coverage, which you're likely going to need IV antibiotics for. Now, what if the patient comes in in a blast crisis, but they don't have a sign of infection? They don't have a fever. They don't have anything focal that we can find. We're going to admit them to the hospital, but should we start them on prophylactic antibiotics? So with prophylactic antibiotics, I really looked far and wide for this, and um, there aren't a whole lot of guidelines for us to follow here. What I would recommend is to speak with your oncologist and follow any local institutional guidelines that you may have. Leukostasis. Let's move into the two big complications that we really think about as emergency clinicians or we get worried about. The first one you mentioned right up front, which was leukostasis. What symptoms will the patient present with that makes me think about leukostasis? Leukostasis also is referred to as hyperviscosity syndrome. And you can kind of get from, you know, what they suggest is that this is what happens when the peripheral blood is so thickened with all those white blood cells. I mean, like multitudes of times more than your blood normally has. And this directly affects the microvasculature first and foremost, everywhere. But the major effects will generally be cardiopulmonary and neurologic. Now, patients may come you know, from a spectrum of having mild symptoms all the way to end organ damage. So they may be completely altered. They may be unresponsive. They may be in frank heart failure. They may be in frank respiratory failure because of pulmonary edema from all this kind of in the end stages. But also remember that they can present early and have very mild symptoms. Is there a threshold white blood count where you say, if it's above this number, you could have leukostasis. If it's below this number, whatever you're dealing with in front of you can't possibly be leukostasis? Not really. So in general, 50 to 100,000 is where you will start seeing symptoms of leukostasis. However, it's so important to remember that things don't happen in isolation. So you may have a patient who comes in with, you know, lightheadedness or headache and confusion, CNS type of symptoms, who has a white blood count of 60,000. Now, you can blame it all on that and forget the rest of the workup, but we're smarter than that, right? 
And we know that more than one thing can happen at a time. And these patients are immunocompromised. You know, they might have a CNS infection on top of leukosiasis. So don't forget to avoid early diagnostic closure and work up infection, work up other complications, work up intracranial hemorrhage, et cetera, when patients present with symptoms. So follow the symptoms. Yes, leukostasis is bad and terrible, and we need to treat that, but concurrently, we need to work up and treat other life-threatening etiologies. So we have a patient with CML coming in with confusion, or like you said, it could be heart failure, it could be respiratory failure. Almost any kind of end organ presentation could be secondary to leukostasis. That's a possibility. Something we should think about in any of these CML patients who are coming in with these presentations in extremis. Let's say that we figure that out, that we think that the patient's symptoms are due to leukostasis. Either they've got stroke type symptoms or altered mental status or respiratory failure. We have a diagnosis or at least a presumptive diagnosis. What treatments should we be initiating to help that patient? First and foremost, of course, supportive care. If they need oxygen, they need oxygen. If they need to be intubated or put on mechanical ventilation, do that, et cetera. Also, um, in addition to that, when you really get down to the treatment for leukostasis, it's going to be in conjunction with your oncologist, and the treatments will be leukophoresis and or induction chemo. And these occur emergently. This is absolutely an indication to wake up your hematologist-oncologist in the middle of the night. And while we're waiting for that to happen, is there anything else that we can do? Do fluids help? Should we be bloodletting these patients? Are there any other treatments that we should be bringing to the bedside? So like we talked about before, we want to hold back on RBC um, transfusions. We even like, I know the tendency might be to diurese these patients, you know, they're coming in with like pulmonary edema and yeah, we think it's leukostasis. We want to get that those fluffy white infiltrates out, but diuretics can actually make leukostasis and hyperviscosity worse. So we don't want to do that. Other things in the meantime, as we spoke about, have a low threshold to start antibiotics and do cultures as these patients are so immunocompromised. This is also a really good time if you're able to have a a conversation or at least start a conversation with the patient or the patient's family regarding advanced care directives and what they would want because it is a high morbidity situation. Tumor lysis syndrome. Finally, Dubs, let's get into tumor lysis syndrome. And I think this is the one that really does give us the most concern, the one we think about the most. How do patients with tumor lysis syndrome present to the emergency department? How am I going to pick this up just based on symptoms? You will see a lot of these come in because they are sent in based on lab work that was done as an outpatient within the cancer centers. But that's not to say that you won't catch tumor lysis syndrome on initial cancer presentations because that definitely happens or just without the help of your friendly neighborhood oncologist, the patient you know, decides that they don't feel well and they come into the ED for evaluation. So the symptoms of tumor lysis are overall fairly vague, just like a lot of other oncology things. And so patients can present with fatigue, nausea, vomiting, fever, just not feeling good. And all of these things are also very common after chemotherapy, which is probably the number one reason that patients go into tumor lysis. Now, just to review real quick what tumor lysis is, it's a metabolic disorder, and it's defined by certain metabolic derangements that occur with high cell turnover. And that high cell turnover can happen with chemotherapy treatment, with radiation treatment as well, but it's most common in the hematologic disorders. 
It can occur in solid tumors as well, but is not as common. And as I said before, it can be the presenting symptom of a patient's malignancy. However, it's much more commonly occurring after a patient has started therapy because of the high rate of cell toxicity and breakdown. So essentially, the metabolic derangements that you'll see are hyperkalemia with all the potassium from within the cells coming out into the, into the blood. You'll see elevated phosphorus. You'll see elevated uric acid. And you'll see a low calcium. And the reason for the low calcium is really more because the phosphorus binds it and actually precipitates. There are also clinical criteria that you can add on to there. And these are renal failure with a creatinine of one and a half times upper limit of normal, cardiac dysrhythmias, or seizures. So the typical case that we're going to see in the emergency department is a patient with CML who's on chemotherapy, who's referred from their oncologist for the oncology clinic because their routine screening laboratories are abnormal, and so they're sent in for evaluation. But we can catch this in patients with CML who are presenting primarily for fatigue. I think fatigue is one of the most common symptoms, but these patients don't always have to be super sick. It kind of depends on how early those lab abnormalities get caught and they get sent in. But that's the typical presentation, CML, fatigue, or referred from clinic for these elevated markers. And then some of the presentation is going to depend on which of these electrolytes are out of whack and how badly out of whack they are. So we can kind of see how if they're very hyperkalemic, we're going to see our typical hyperkalemia picture. If they're very hypocalcemic, we're going to see our typical hypocalcemic picture. I guess the question is, is there anything different in terms of treatment? If the patient comes in with tumor lysis syndrome, either referred in or they come in primarily, we find them to be hyper-K or hypocalcemic. Do we treat those as we typically would, or is there something different for tumor lysis syndrome? There are a couple of things that you may do a little bit differently. So you, you do want to blast these patients with tons and tons of fluids. Typically, you know, if we have a patient coming with hyperkalemia due to missing dialysis or something like that, we may not be as generous with IV fluids, but in tumor lysis syndrome, you want to give fluids, 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 fluids. Additionally, when we see hyperkalemia, we like to follow that up with calcium because we don't like dysrhythmias, right? And we want to stabilize that myocardium. However, giving a patient with tumor lysis syndrome calcium can increase precipitation with the phosphorus, all that extra phosphorus floating around and cause worsened renal failure. And so this starts this vicious cycle of renal failure and increased phosphorus and precipitating with calcium and more precipitates and clogging up the kidneys, etc. So we want to be judicious with our calcium in these situations. Certainly if a patient has major EKG changes or came in with dysrhythmia and you suspect it because they had syncope or something like that, then go ahead and give them the calcium, but know that that may worsen their renal function. And of course, that worsening renal function is going to worsen the hyperkalemia, which is what we were trying to treat yes. in the first place. So this is a very tricky thing. So give calcium if they have gross abnormalities. If you just see you know, a high potassium, but no EKG changes, not the place to wade in with calcium, which we've talked about before, is probably not a good indication to give calcium under normal circumstances, but here even more so. So we're going to hold the calcium for when they have some EKG changes that we're really concerned about. We're going to give lots and lots of fluids. Any specific medications that we're going to be calling for in these patients? 
In terms of the uric acid, you may need to initiate treatment for that. So what we want to reach for is actually uricase, and the brand name for that is rasburicase. And what it is is an enzyme that's going to convert all that extra uric acid into a form that we can actually excrete. Summary. It's a nice overview of all the things we have to think about with blast crisis, starting with things like anemia and thrombocytopenia, which are very common, but treated a little bit differently. For thrombocytopenia, the thresholds are kind of the same, but for anemia, even if the hemoglobin is under seven, we're not going to transfuse unless the patient needs it right away. And, and the reason for that is it could actually worsen the viscosity of the blood and worsen leukostasis, which is another one of the complications that we have to think about. These patients can come in with altered mental status, confusion, focal neurologic deficits. They can have stroke-like syndromes. They can also have heart failure and respiratory failure. Typically, these patients are going to be pretty sick. The white blood cell counts are going to be very high, but they are functionally neutropenic. But then they have this blood sludging around causing all of these problems. We want to give them some fluids. We want to get on the phone with our oncologist, start the process of getting leukophoresis in place. We want to start the process possibly of getting induction chemotherapy to lower those white blood counts. And the sooner we get our hematologists on board with these patients, the sooner they can get those things done. And then the other big complication we have to think about is tumor lysis syndrome. Typically, these patients will be referred in, but they could come in just with some vague symptoms of fatigue or nausea, and we have to be on the lookout for this. Elevated potassium, elevated uric acid, elevated FOS, depressed calcium is what we're typically going to see. We can treat those as we normally would. So if they have EKG changes due to hyperkalemia, give them calcium. But if they don't have changes due to hyperkalemia, don't give them calcium because the calcium and the FOS are going to precipitate out. They're going to clog the renal tubules, going to cause worsening renal function, which in turn is going to cause worsening hyperkalemia. So again, we want to get on the phone with our hematologist to help us with management, give them fluids. Rasburicase is going to be the drug that we're going to reach for, for the elevated uric acids. And obviously all of these patients are going to be admitted. And obviously all of these patients, we have to consider infection either as a possible trigger or a co-problem that these patients are having. So we're going to be fairly liberal with antibiotics, broad spectrum antibiotics for these patients if they come in with one of these complications. Dubs, I think this is, again, a nice overview of these problems that maybe we don't see a ton, but depending on the institution you work at and how much oncology is going on, you might actually see these pretty frequently and you've got to have a good grasp of what to do. For sure. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much again for having me, Swami. Dubs. Ver Vertigo, part two. It's horrible. Jimmy Stewart at Prussia. So let's actually find out what happened to the patient is that this patient was managed very similarly to what you recommended. They were sent for a head CT. The scan came back negative, but shortly after returning from the study, the patient became significantly less responsive. And I'm reading the medical decision-making note here. They became significantly less responsive and developed sonorous respirations. Pupils are less reactive. She appears to have a left-sided gaze. Paralysis seemed to now be affecting both sides of her body, and the decision is made to intubate the patient. So what pro tips do you have for us when intubating a stroke patient? Because obviously we don't want them to become significantly hypotensive and maybe extend the penumbra because they don't get good perfusion. On the other hand, the act of being intubated, it's never happened to me, fortunately, but I'm guessing can be a pretty, you know, blood pressure instigating type of process. And we don't want them to have a pressure that bumps up 40 or 60 millimeters of mercury higher. So what are you doing when intubating your patient to make sure the patient doesn't get hypotensive or hypertensive during that process? When I'm intubating a stroke patient, an ischemic stroke is different from an intracerebral hemorrhage. 
So let's talk first about the acute ischemic stroke. We want the blood pressure to be on the higher side, but not over 180 if we're going to use thrombolytics. But we want it to stay higher so that we can perfuse the penumbra. We want to make sure we're getting the circulation to that tissue that's at risk. The core, necrotic tissue, is gone. We're not going to save that, but we want to keep it on the higher side. However, we don't want it to go too high, so we are prepared to address those blood pressure changes that happen. When you put the laryngoscope blade into the vollecula, you're going to cause a sympathetic surge. So one of the things that we can do to prevent that increase in blood pressure is give the patient some fentanyl beforehand. I like to give 50 or 100. That's micrograms of fentanyl. Some folks give more than that, but I want to give that so that they mitigate the risk of a sympathetic surge. We used to use lidocaine in patients with TBI because we thought we would decrease the risk of increasing their ICP. That's been debunked thoroughly. We don't use lidocaine anymore. What we're concerned about is cerebral perfusion pressure, which, as you know, by definition, is the mean arterial pressure minus the ICP. If your patient has a good exam and they're talking to you and their cognition is good, you can rest assured with an ischemic stroke, they probably don't have an increased ICP. So just coming back from the TBI world, I'm not too worried about that. The other thing I do is make sure the patient is as hydrated as I can reasonably get them because a well-hydrated patient is going to have less lability in their blood pressure. The other thing I like to have ready, if possible, is push-dose agents. We also don't want the blood pressure to drop precipitously in the ischemic stroke patient because then you're going to mess with your perfusion and that penumbra is going to go to becoming necrotic. So perfusion is so important in these patients, keeping the blood pressure up. So I'm ready with some push-dose phenylephrine typically. You can use push-dose epi if you like, but make sure that you have an eye on the real-time blood pressure. So if you can have an arterial line to see what that blood pressure is doing, all the better. Oftentimes we don't have all kinds of time to do all these things, but the most important things are getting them as hydrated as, as you can, being aware of what's going to happen to the blood pressure when you put the laryngoscope blade in, being aware of the agents you use. So let's move now to the actual agents. So for most of my career, I've been pretty much of a Atomidate sucks guy. I've sort of moved recently to rock. Excellent! And I think, you know, ketamine would also be another alternative here too. But say, for example, I was doing Atomidate plus a paralytic. Do you have a preference between sucks and rock? I, like you, am a rock person. But in this case, if I want to watch this patient's exam, I'm going to use succinylcholine. And unless I have a neurologic process that's been going on for a long time where I'm worried about the downside of succinylcholine, hyperkalemia, cardiac arrhythmia, et cetera, I'm going to use that because it's rapid. And I'm going to get my exam back much sooner. Any special event settings or just, again, what we're most comfortable with for any intubated patient? Yeah, it's worth saying hyperventilation is definitely out for this patient because we are so dependent on the perfusion. But whatever vent setting you're used to, whatever vent setting you're comfortable with, as well as the respiratory therapist that's working with you, target the CO2 that's normal. Target 30 to 40. Don't try to hyperventilate. Don't try to be permissively hypercarbic. Target normal CO2. And you don't have to give a lot of oxygen. If your patient was not hypoxic when they came in, start with 
50%, get a gas, see where they're at. So let's go back to the bedside. And what we find is that the patient was, similar to how you recommended, intubated with succinylcholine and etomidate. They obtained additional information from the boyfriend after the patient was intubated, said that she felt pretty well for the two days after discharge, and she still did have some intermittent dizziness, but they say no definite ataxia. And then as far as further follow-up from the patient, unfortunately, the patient did not do well. Uh, Further note from the chart, the patient was evaluated by neurology due to the uncertain time of onset of symptoms and duration of symptoms was not a candidate for thrombolytics. The patient was transferred for an emergent MRI, which ended up showing a brainstem infarction. She was taken to the MICU and then later that day, support was withdrawn and unfortunately the patient expired. So Abby, I wanted to close our discussion out in two different ways. One is I want to just get you a little bit more Fisher cut bait moment on a couple other patient scenarios that I have sort of found difficult during my career. So let me just give you a scenario. This is not our patient, a little more of a branch point, a patient who has some significant vascular risk factors, who is coming in with a gradual onset of vertigo. It's been going on for the last 90 minutes before they get to the emergency department. We're concerned about stroke because it's constant. It's not a BPPV type of picture. We send the patient for non-con brain, CTA brain and neck. They all come back negative. What is the role of systemic thrombolytics in a patient with less than three hours of vertigo where we're concerned about a posterior circulation stroke? So with a patient who's got risk factors and a gradual onset, if you don't find something in the vasculature with CTA and you don't find anything on MRI, first thing is check again. Make sure you're talking to the radiologist and saying, I'm concerned about posterior stroke. But if it's completely clean and you have these symptoms and they had a gradual onset, that's not a patient I'm going to give TPA to. Okay, that's awesome. And I'm glad to hear you say that. And, you know, I would guess, and I'm not actually familiar with the specific literature on practice variation with stroke neurologists or even specifically emergency medicine physicians in this exact situation. But I'm just sort of guessing based on my own experience, because we actually use a stroke neurologist at Ohio State through a robot. And I know that there is some variation, even just in my own experience with those. So why don't we close things out with this study? And I'm just going to briefly summarize the study. And it's similar to some past studies, which were a lot smaller, but this is Hazlett et al. called Systematic Review of Malpractice Litigation in the Diagnosis and Treatment of Acute Stroke. This was in the journal Stroke in 2019. And what they did is they looked at 246 medical malpractice cases related to the acute management of ischemic stroke. Now, it has been the narrative the last probably 10 years or so that it's more risky to not give TPA than to give TPA, which is a little bit counterintuitive. You think that there's a medication that has a significant risk. I mean, even the initial NIN study, 1995, showed 6% symptomatic hemorrhage after administration, 12% risk of asymptomatic hemorrhage. And I will say just, again, a little bit of a caveat on this is that these are stroke patients. So stroke mimics are different. They bleed way less and and probably somewhere around 1% or maybe even slightly less than that in stroke mimic type of patients. So I'm not saying you should give it to a stroke mimic patient. I'm just saying they would have a lower frequency of bleeding than the actual stroke patient. So this has been a narrative all along, and I'm sure that that's something that is present in your institution, just like all of us, right? 
Absolutely, Mike, this is true. I get a lot of calls for MedMal work, and the predominant majority of the calls are for not giving thrombolytics or for not diagnosing a stroke or for not getting the patient to thrombectomy. And and yes, we are generally not in favor of giving something that can cause somebody to have a bleed or even a symptomatic bleed. But as we advance in our imaging and as the world of stroke advances so rapidly, we have to be diagnostic experts. I'm going to introduce something else here is the, is the, the concept of, of shared decision-making because it's not our job to tell people what to do, but to give them the options and say, this is what is going on. These are your options. This is my recommendation. Yeah, and this previous study by Lang, 2008, in Annals of Emergency Medicine, had a far fewer number of patients. A lot of people, and myself included, thought there were some methodologic difficulties with that study. But this current study by Haslett has some fairly similar findings. This is pretty amazing. 246 MedMal cases, 71 cases specifically alleged a failure to treat with TPA. There was also difficulties with failure to timely diagnose, failure to timely transfer. And out of all of these cases, interestingly, over half, so 56% ended with no payment, 27% were settled out of court, and 17% went to court. So 47 cases went to court and resulted in a verdict for the plaintiff. The payouts for these were enormously high, which is probably not surprising, considering the fact that oftentimes patients who have stroke have devastating outcomes. The average payout in the settlements was $1.8 million, and the average payout in a plaintiff verdict after going to trial was $9.7 million. You know, Mike, this is all true, and it rings true from my experience of what I've seen happen in the MedMal world. First of all, this is low-hanging fruit for attorneys to look for a patient who had a stroke and didn't get thrombolytics, didn't get offered thrombolytics, didn't get transferred in time, didn't get endovascular treatment. And what are they looking for? They're looking for guidelines and protocols, and they're going to hold up whatever happened to that guideline and protocol, and they're looking for the documentation, as you well know. And what we have to recognize is that posterior stroke dizziness, vertigo, it's becoming more of a prominent issue in emergency medicine because we have this advanced imaging. We can treat patients with stroke so much more than we could 10 or 20 years ago. Since we have all those opportunities, we're going to be held up to those standards. And that's what's happening. Yeah. One thing I've done in my own documentation is incorporated a reason why I didn't give TPA. And it might be sort of inane, like the patient is not a thrombolytic candidate due to the fact they have a intracranial hemorrhage or, you know, is not a thrombolytic candidate due to the fact that their symptoms started seven days ago. But specifically putting that in the note also causes me to really think, is that a true reason not to consider that patient for some sort of thrombolytic or even evaluation for a large vessel occlusion? And just the act of putting that in there in a sense, keeps me honest with myself with that type of documentation. So I would encourage us to do that. I'm not saying that that will prevent a lawsuit in a patient where we miss a stroke because they presented atypically. However, it is sort of the next level of explaining what the thought process was at the bedside. 
Abby, why don't we close this out with any sort of pro tips you have based on not only this case, but also some of the med mal type of issues? First of all, so Mike, when you say you document, this is why I didn't offer thrombolytics, et cetera, that's really important. I'm going to add another thing is if you're not offering thrombolytics or if you're not pursuing endovascular, bring a neurologist along with you. No harm. Just bring them in and say, I've got this patient. This is what's going on. I don't think they're a candidate for thrombolytics. Do you agree? Because this is what they do all day, every day. And as I said earlier, the field is advancing so quickly. It's really hard for us to stay on top of all the advanced imaging and the changing protocols. So I always have a low threshold to bring a neurologist along with me. Second thing is know your local protocols. Know what the protocol is in your hospital for a patient with stroke. Know the guidelines. The guidelines are changing quickly and we need to be on top of those because we're going to be held up to those guidelines. Know that neurologists and radiologists miss these strokes as well. Be vigilant and look at your imaging. And if the story doesn't make sense with the imaging, look at it again, review it again. The mimics are so important to think about. Everything from seizure to migraine to hypoglycemia, think about those. And we're talking a lot about posterior stroke and talking about posterior stroke in a young person. It's uncommon. This is not something you're going to find a lot of. But if you're not thinking about it, you'll miss it. Like I always say, if it's not in your differential, it won't be in your diagnosis. Evie, thank you so much and look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks, Mike. This was really fun. Let's do it again. Jan, it's time for the mailbag, and I've got a big bag of letters from the home office in Bosco, Louisiana. Ah, love Bosco, Louisiana. (laughs) They've got great hot sauce there. It's just a wonderful place to visit. Hot sauce! All right, so what do we got on tap? What's the letter that we pulled? Letter one. So back in January 2021, Gita Pensa and Jared Anderson discussed the 21st Century Cures Act, and we had some listeners write in, so we've got them back to address some issues. Hi, Jared. Thanks for doing this follow-up segment with us. We had some reader questions after our last segment on the final rule section of the Cures Act. So by now, I think most listeners have probably had to get used to the idea of patients being able to see their notes and lab results in real time, and the reality of that is starting to sink in. And one listener sent us the following question, quote, Now that patients have access to the medical record, how do I document drug-seeking behavior or conversion disorder or Munchausen syndrome? Should I be doing this at all? I believe it's helpful to other doctors who look at the medical record after I see the patient, but I can see how it might be used against me and potentially hurt the patient. So, Jared, all of those scenarios presented in that question I think are pretty thorny, and my first thought was that it seems that sometimes we can block the release of notes if we think that they could be harmful to the patient. Is that something that we can do? Hi, Gita. First of all, I totally agree that these are all really tricky situations. I doubt that the lawmakers were considering these types of edge cases when the rule was written. But, you know, for those of us on the front line, these kinds of situations, they're our reality. So going back to your question about when we can block the release of notes, I think 
this is a really important time to review kind of the core of the final rule. So remember, the 21st Century Cures Act only allows you to block patient information if it puts the patient at risk of physical harm, mm. or if the patient or their designee actually actively requests that information be withheld. Those are the two criteria. Okay. It notably does not allow you to block information for the potential risk of more psychiatric harm or distress for the patient. So actually, no, in general, this couldn't be used for most of those cases described in the listener question. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> But I think it is important that listeners also know that your state laws can supplement some additional criteria for information blocking. You know, for example, in Rhode Island, where Gita and I practice, there's a state law allowing us to block information if we determine a note or result is likely to cause psychiatric distress to a patient. That would make it a ton easier to handle some of these types of situations like the listener mentioned. Okay, so maybe I could block those notes in Rhode Island, but someone in a different state might not be able to, so they should check their state laws. Exactly. Okay. So if we live in a state where we don't have the option to hide a potentially psychologically distressing note from a patient, then then what should we be doing then? So let's let's talk about discussing drug-seeking behavior in the note. Well, I would say one of your first options is maybe start lobbying your state lawmakers to fix it. But ah. let's say you can't do that. Okay, barring a legal solution, you know, let, let's talk through these situations and, and just try to, to break them down a little bit. You know, I'll preface this and say I have no particular authority on how to handle these situations. You know, at best, these are my opinions. Let's, let's frame this a little bit better. Remember, the reason the final rule of the Cures Act was passed and designed, it was to make our thoughts be more transparent to our patients and try to avoid hidden information and hidden narratives. It promotes an overall guiding principle of trying to be more direct and more honest with our patients. So returning to your example, a patient or a provider suspects drug-seeking behavior. You know, first of all, you know, let's be real, a provider should already be having a conversation with patients in these scenarios, even if it's brief. You know, I'm a frontline provider and I totally get how uncomfortable and challenging some patients can be with regard to pain management, right? But mm -hmm. I don't think avoidance was ever the best strategy, even before all of this Cures Act stuff, you know. So I think we should be having a conversation and then documenting the conversation, you know, should not surprise or harm the patient, nor should it really expose the provider to any risk. You know, for example, you might write, the patient and I had a conversation about pain management. The patient requested opioid pain relief at dosing and intervals that I was concerned were not medically appropriate. I discussed with the patient my concerns and that I would instead be offering you know, such and such alternatives and would like to continue evaluating the patient's pain or complaints. Okay. All right. Well, that's reasonable. Let's talk about conversion disorder. I guess some now call it functional neurologic symptom disorder or FNSD. I think this is a this is a tough one. So let's let's talk this through too. Tough and really interesting, right? Conversion disorder is a, a, a fascinating problem. And I have a few thoughts here. First of all, you know, when these symptoms are new, a patient comes in with new neurologic symptoms that we suspect could be a functional neurologic disorder. You know, we're usually not making these diagnoses definitively. Instead, we're considering them as part of our differential. You know, remember, in a functional neurologic disorder, such as conversion disorder, even though these might be provoked by mental distress, you know, these symptoms are 100% real to the patient's experience. These aren't people faking it or malingering. Right. You know, so similar to the example of, of the, the pain-seeking patient, I think being direct in the communication is actually really important in this scenario too. You know, don't be avoidant about it. Talk with them about their symptoms. Validate that they're actually experiencing real symptoms. And explain that sometimes neurologic symptoms are caused by issues that are hard to prove based on tests available to us. You know, their symptoms might relate more to the function rather than the structure 
of the nervous system, and then you could document accordingly. You know, for mm, example, I like that. Let's let's say you you want to um, document a patient like that. Right? You could write the differential diagnosis for the patient's neurologic symptoms or deficits today includes a functional neurologic disorder. You know, along with a much lower probability of something structural in the central nervous system like a stroke, mass lesion, something causing a seizure. These clinical features that lead me to suspect it's a functional neurologic disorder are X, Y, and Z. And we're going to perform this evaluation today to rule out other conditions. And one last thing I just want to th throw in here for these disorders, there actually are some great patient-centered resources you can give these patients that kind of further help validate them to understand their symptoms. And there's a, a website called neurosymptoms.org that I think is actually really great both for providers and patients to look in the situation. Neurosymptoms.org. Okay, I'm going to check that out. The last thing this listener mentioned in their question was Munchausen's. So if you have a suspicion of Munchausen's or even worse, Munchausen's by proxy, how, I don't know, how, how might you proceed with this one? <laughs> Gita, let's be honest. I, I don't know. This is a, I don't know if anyone really knows what to do with this one, right? It's, it's such a nightmare. It was a nightmare well before we had open nose. It's so challenging. You know, Just to, to remind listeners for a quick review, right? Munchausen's and Munchausen's by, by proxy, they're also known as factitious disorders, sort of the more modern term for them. It's where patients are either truly, we'll call it faking, symptoms of illness, or they might even be self-inflicting real physical illness on them by you know, poisoning or self-injury. And what they're looking to get is something known as primary gain. You know, They get some kind of emotional relief or pleasure from being in the sick role. It's an internal reward for the patients and getting attention from you know, medical professionals or family members. So you know, what to do with this in the era of open nose. You know, in general, I'm not so sure I would document my suspicion for this unless I really had some crystal clear evidence, you know, clear collateral to back it up that, you know, really there's very little doubt on. You know, if you witness a specific behavior that makes you suspicious, maybe consider just documenting that behavior in very objective terms rather than, you know, your conclusion about a factitious disorder and putting any kind of judgmental conclusion into that patient's chart. You know, most of the time, this is not a diagnosis we're going to make. You know, maybe we have some suspicions about it, but this is something that takes off in a comprehensive team and multiple hospitalizations to get to the bottom of. And I'm interested if you or any of the listeners have ideas for a better approach here. I think this is incredibly tricky. So I haven't dealt with Munchausen's yet, but in sticky situations like this, where I've definitely had second thoughts about putting something in the note, I have made phone calls. So I've called the patient's primary and said, I, this isn't going to be in the note, but this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'm worried about. And so sometimes it's, you know, I guess it does sort of bypass the, the spirit of the law, but I find myself doing that a little more now than maybe I used to. I still think that's a, a great and really practical way to try to handle that. So, I mean, have, have you encountered other scenarios that were thorny for you so far? I know we're just getting started with this, but is, is there anything else that has come up that's been troublesome for you? To be honest, I would say the launch of the final rule and open notes and open data for patients, it's gone pretty smoothly for me. Most people have been really reasonable about it. I think some of my patients probably just aren't that interested in this information to begin with. And those that are, you know, usually I can talk them down. And so I would say I've actually been pretty happy with how this has started. I'm sure I'm just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. What about you? Honestly, so far, I think the worst of it has been the patients getting their test results while I'm taking care of someone else, and then they're mad that they're still waiting, or they see something in their labs or like a possible malignancy on their imaging, and it would have been much better if I could have talked to them first. And so there's been a number of times where the nurse 
secure chats me and says, you know, so-and-so in bed 22 is very, very upset about their labs. Like, can you get in there right now? And you know, maybe I'm in the middle of something else. But I mean, those are frustrating things, but nothing, nothing horrible yet. I've been, I've been trying to figure out how to navigate things a little bit better. I am very thoughtful now about what's going in the note and the language I use. I'm definitely getting into that habit. I almost never check the box in the physical exam that says obese. And I use your advice from the last segment. I'll write in BMI over 35 if I think it's relevant to the presenting problem and only if I think it's relevant. And I think my notes are a lot blander in general, but you know, maybe that's okay. Yeah, I agree. I think I've I've had a little bit of blander notes too and have run into some of those same situations, but generally I don't think it's had major negative impact for, you know, my my patient rapport or my workflow or anything else. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing if there's any other listener comments on this and if there are, I'm going to have you back. So thanks again, Jared, for coming to chat. We appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you. All right, Jan, that's our mailbag for the month. All the listeners out there remember to keep those letters coming. Yep, absolutely. We love our pen pals. I'm just postman. The postman. Live from the MRAP studios in Woodland Hills, California, Mel Herbert Enterprises LLC, in association with the International Consortium of Medical Educational Material in the Audiovisual Format, invites you to the 17th annual Rappy Award. Welcome to the Rappies. Welcome to the best of 2021 MRAP Awards, which we are calling the Rappies. I think the Rappies is the perfect term for it. Uh, I, I can't think of what, what, what else would we possibly call the best of MRAP except the Rappies. Of course, it has to be the Rappies. And I'm so excited to introduce <laughs> this. And we are going to talk about our favorite pieces of the year, all kinds of categories. You can just guess what they might be. But Swami, do you want to kick us off? I do. And, and I, before I kick off with, with what my favorite piece of the year is, I just want to say that this went through a very rigorous voting process and nomination process. This is something we fool around with. We had judges. We had everyone on the MRAP staff nominating pieces. We had sealed envelopes. This was all done on the up and up. This was not a willy-nilly fly-by-night kind of uh, production here, okay? So give us credit where credit is due. Absolutely. These are legitimate awards, the <laughs> the creators of which can put these on their CV for promotion. I mean, everyone knows about the Rappies, right? Absolutely. I don't think there's uh, much of an award that gets you more clout than a Rappy. So let's get into it, Jen. Swami Segment of the Year. I want to start with my favorite piece in terms of the medical knowledge that I gained from the piece, and my favorite was the July critical care mailbag on end title CO2. It's another one of these multimodal monitors. It's doing so many things at once, and that's a blessing and a curse, because what you really would love in some ways is to divide out each of its parts. To I feel like end title CO2 is one of these things that I should understand really well, and then I always run into these issues where I'm like, eh, maybe I don't really understand this quite as well as I thought. But that piece kind of wrapped it all up in one place. I feel very comfortable with that right now. A lot more comfortable than I did before. So, Scott, that was your piece. Fantastic piece on entitled CO2. Absolutely. Jan, what was your favorite piece from a medical perspective? Jan's segment of the year. So from a medical perspective, my favorite piece this year was the piece that Eileen Claudius and Ryan Pedigo did on insulin pumps. Ah, so common misconception number one has been identified. The insulin pumps deliver a subcutaneous continuous infusion of a rapid acting insulin. And such as the reason that I really enjoyed it, when you're listening to a piece and you really find yourself almost wanting to take notes because 
There's so much good stuff in there that you think you could use on your next shift. I just thought it was full of pearls. And it also, I work in a place where I don't see insulin pumps all the time. So I love reviewing things that you either don't get to do very often or don't get to see very often. And that was one of those pieces for me. Best rural medicine piece. All right, let's get to some of the other categories here. The next one is the best rural medicine piece. And Jen, every month, the rural medicine piece is the one that people like the most, whether it's us, you and I like it the most, or the listeners write in about how much they love it. So this was a really hard one, really hard to pick out our favorite rural medicine piece. My favorite was the weakness, diplopia, and a whale. Yeah, this takes place up in the northern region of Quebec in the Inuit territory called Nunavik. Because I didn't listen to the piece before it was published, and then I started listening to it, I'm like, Wait, why, why is there a whale involved? I don't, I don't. Why are people eating whale? I, it was it was way beyond what we see in New Jersey, but a fantastic piece with Cardi on the weakness and the botulism. Yes, that one was a really good case. My favorite rural medicine piece this year by far was the cranial borehole piece. In emergency medicine, sometimes we're faced with having to perform a rare and potentially life-saving procedure. And this can be a career-defining moment. That was a piece where, from beginning to end, I was absolutely mesmerized. I have never done that procedure before. To think about this, you know, dying person and doing this heroic procedure, I was absolutely captivated. It came with a video. Fantastic. Loved the cranial burr hole piece. Thank you so much to those who put it together. That was a fantastic piece. It gives me a little bit of nightmares, Jan, thinking about having to do a burr hole in the emergency department. It's why every time we buy a cantaloupe, I drill a couple of holes into it. I'm told that that's very similar. <laughs> Best unnecessary back and forth. All right, so our, our next next rappy is for the best unnecessary back and forth, Jan. Pieces that are going back and forth. And this one actually spanned more than a year. So which piece or pieces won the best unnecessary back and forth? The best unnecessary back and forth goes to the hand-washing smackdown between Dan McCollum and Weingart. I think those are the two that were involved in this, yes? You know, even in his retort, there were still things that I would, and I I say this as a friend, brother, characterize as dogma. Only in the 2021 MRAP would we need to have four pieces on hand-washing, but they were pretty enjoyable. These guys are pretty smart. They really do their work, and uh, I think we've put this to bed we're not going to talk about it again for a long time, but that one was was one of our favorite unnecessary back and forth. Might have been the only unnecessary back and forth of the year, but it was a particularly fantastic one. Best snack. All right. And this year, the best snack award, Swami, goes to? Well, this one, we actually had a couple of different pieces, but all from the same person. So we are giving the best snack award to Alden Landry and his three pieces on equity in medicine. This was the February piece on pulse ox bias. Pulse oximeters were developed and calibrated to work on white skin. The June piece on restraints. Black patients without a history of violence were restrained more than white patients without a history of violence. And the September piece on patient identifiers in presentations. And he was identifying the race of some patients and not others. And I stopped and asked him why he was doing this. And he said, I don't know. That's just how I was taught to do so. This is a new push in the MRAP universe. We're going to talk more about these issues of equity and inclusion and diversity. And Alden really kind of led this off this year with some fantastic pieces. I can't wait to get into more because Alden, uh, this guy really knows his stuff. And I can't wait to get into more of these topics. Best HD video. All right, let's go to our best HD video. We got to give a shout out to our girl, Jess. Jess put in so much time and work with so many different videos. And I think that there were a lot that we loved 
My personal favorite, Jan, was the nail bed repair piece. And four, splint and protect the nail matrix and nail fold. And I'll tell you, this is not the really the flashiest of procedures to do, but it is good bread and butter emergency medicine. And if you don't know how to repair a nail bed lack the right way, it is just a huge mess. So I loved that video piece. I think it's really necessary watching for anyone providing emergency care. Best song. Okay, and this year's best song. Now, we have wonderful sound designers, and these guys, they go all out, and they are so creative. This is very hard to pick which best song to award it to, but in this envelope here, Swami, I have the best song. What do you think it is? What do you want it to be? What is the best song? I I know what I want it to be. I know what I want it to be, Jan. I feel like I have a little bit of insider information since I did vote for it. And just, you know, we did check the envelopes. Everything is spelled correctly. The right envelopes went for the right categories. You know what? I'm not going to guess, Jan. I'm not going to guess. I want to leave it. I, I feel like we need a drum roll because these are these, these are the big awards, Jan. I know. This is like the best actor, best song. So Jan, drum roll. What was the best song? The best song of 2021 goes to ECMO, which is really Elmo. Elmo's song. If you bump your blood outside the body, ECMO's on. Yeah, if the blood's out of your body, it's ECMO's on. I love it. Oh my God. It's just fantastic. <laughs> that also gave me some nightmares, Jan, because all three of my kids loved Elmo and loved that song. And uh, we're out of that phase in our house. So we don't listen to Elmo very much anymore, but that one took me back. The future of ECMO is amazing. ECMO. Best skit. Now, this is the next of the most favorite of awards. You know, we've got three big ones here. This is number two, best skit. And this is this is where our sound design team really comes up big. This is where they earn their paycheck for the year. And that is the best skit. So Jan, did you have did you have any particular favorites or, or where do you think this one's gonna go? Do you want to guess or should we just should we just rip open rip that? Rip open the envelope, Swami. All right, drum roll. It was the New York cabbie piece. The New York cabbie. The expert in delivering babies. This is a fantastic piece. I know we're going to hear a little tidbit coming up right yeah, now. Baby, use your coke all over the seat because I don't want to get a lot of blood and shit and stuff all over everything. Can you turn that f***ing thing off? How do I turn this video off? Don't try and mute that thing. It's not going to shut off. Best picture. And finally. Yeah, finally. The big one. This is the big one, Jan. The best picture of the year. Goes to the best overall segment of all the MRAP segments, Jen. All every MRAP, there's probably like 400 of them this year. 400 MRAP segments. I mean, this is a unanimous vote. Unanimous vote for this piece. The best overall segment this year goes to rural medicine, moose in the road, absolutely fabulous piece. I don't think I had any inspiring moments that night. I think it was mostly terror, which then became desperation. Looking back, I can see that it was a monumental effort. This really was a wonderful piece because of how all of these different providers came together to deliver absolutely incredible care. And I remember, Jan, when we initially listened to this, the two of us kind of sitting there saying, do you think we could do this in our place? Level one trauma center with 900 people taking care of patients. And I'm not sure that we could, or at least definitely not as well as this group did. Really fantastic piece, the way it was put together, but also the underlying story there of all of these people really coming to the, the the height of their careers, the height of their delivery of medical care. Absolutely. And, you know, the technical part of these pieces behind the scenes, the way that these pieces are put together, our sound designers did a great job just 
taking us moment by moment so you felt like you were there. And part of that was also the wonderful narration. So just great job. Love these rural medicine pieces, but the moose in the middle of the road is the winner for the overall segment of the year by our very prestigious committee. Again, congratulations to this year's Rappies winners. The Rappies are nominated by the members of the corresponding MRAP segment branch. All voting members are eligible to select the best segment nominees. During final voting, all segments are on the ballot for voting doctors. Votes are tabulated by PricewaterhouseCoopers. To be eligible for the 17th annual Rappy Awards, segments must meet all qualifications in their respective categories, including requirements pertaining to podcast releases and exhibition formats. Promotional considerations furnished by ECMO, Swami's Wardrobe by Versace, Jan's Wardrobe by Ralph Lauren. Copyright 2021 MRAP Studios. Monster like that, (laughs) Jan. It is time for the mega summary. Time to sum up all of the great stuff that we had, and of course, we're going to do it super quick. Mega super quick. We're going to do it in less than twenty minutes. That's my goal. Less than twenty minutes. Mega less than twenty minutes. Let's get into it. All right, I'm down. Let's roll. So first off, rural medicine talks. Rural medicine avalanche. Vanessa Cardi talks to Eric Condant, and she says it with a beautiful French accent. Eric Condant. Eric Condant. <laughs> this is a case that takes place in Iceland, and I learned a lot in this piece about how people in avalanches actually die. I hadn't really thought about it, but there are really three distinct ways that avalanche victims can die. Now they can have trauma, get hit by something, and that's it. You know, head injury kind of thing. Number two, they can asphyxiate. If their airway is packed with snow, then they get hypoxic and they can die that way. Or they could just purely die of hypothermia. Say they didn't have a lot of trauma. They're in some kind of air pocket and they're just purely cold. And that actually is the best case scenario. So when you're rescuing an avalanche victim, you are fighting against the clock and finding this patient because if they do have snow in their airway, they have a blocked airway, That is the most time-sensitive issue that you could potentially reverse. So you want to get to them as quickly as possible for that reason alone. The best case scenario is a patient who was found with their airway open, no obvious devastating trauma. They likely went into cardiac arrest purely from the hypothermia, and it turns out ECMO may be a good option here and may salvage them. So a very interesting discussion about avalanche victims. I don't want to be too light about the topic, Jen, but what I was hoping to hear is that every cartoon I watched as a kid was accurate, and when an avalanche is coming, avalanche, I should hide behind a rock or a tree, and then a St. Bernard with a little yes. ba- a barrel full of whiskey is going yes. to find me, and even though I look like I'm dead, they're just going to put a little whiskey in my mouth, and I'm going to be fine. And yes. I would like to make sure that if I have advanced directives, that that's in my advanced directives. I would like to be saved by a St. Bernard with a barrel of whiskey. <laughs> I wish that there were St. Bernard's in this particular piece, but unfortunately they weren't mentioned. So maybe that's <laughs> no the factor Bernard's. that could really save all these people. We should just give every person on the mountain yes. a St. Bernard with a barrel of whiskey and everything will be fine. <laughs> all right, let's 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 leave the St. Bernard's for a moment, Jan. I know we're both dog people. Let's get into our next segment. Which is on ultrasound and cardiac arrest with Jacob Avila. And what we really got into was the number of different roles that POCUS can be used for. I think that we know that ultrasound plays a role here, but maybe not all of the different things it can do. So Jacob talks about using it for reversible causes or to identify those reversible causes. Instead of that traditional ACLS teaching of going through H's and T's and then guessing, we can actually look. Is there tamponade? Is there hypovolemia? Is there a tension pneumothorax? Is there a thrombosis? If the patient has return of spontaneous circulation, we might be able to see that one of the walls of the heart isn't beating well, telling us, oh, maybe there's an MI here. Or 
There could be a clot in transit, or we see the right ventricle isn't functioning properly, telling us there's a PE. And then we can also look for internal trauma because we know sometimes we don't quite get the right history and there is actually some trauma that's been hidden. In addition to that, we can use it for procedural guidance, vascular access, arterial lines, guiding our pericardiocentesis instead of, Jen, what we used to do, which was, let's blindly stick a needle in the direction of the heart and let's hope that we get in the right place. And let's hope that they actually have an effusion that's the problem in the first place. We can use it for rhythm checks. And if we do that, we have to make sure that we have an approach. We have a tactic for how we're going to do this to make sure those rhythm checks aren't prolonged, but we get the information that we need. And so this is all the stuff that we go through. And Jacob is a master of this, but also is a master at teaching us how to do it well. Yeah, I think that's the key there. You have to be good at it. I find that the challenge to, to really looking around and checking all these things is just the fact that we also know in our brain that CPR has to be good and ongoing and uninterrupted. And it's hard to do an ultrasound when you have a moving chest and you're trying to pick up on all these different things. So you've got to be good at your ultrasound. You've got to coordinate with your compressor. And so I thought it was a really interesting discussion to think about, you know, really the importance of doing that coordination because of all this information you can get. Next, we had Jess Mason and Michelle Callahan talking about treating victims of sexual assault. It's a very delicate topic. These are obviously patients that have been very traumatized. And so this was really an overview of what are our obligations, what is the role of the ED physician in the care of these patients. Now, just to point out, now we typically speak about sexual abuse victims with the she or her pronoun, but remember, this is something that can happen to males, to transgender individuals, it can really happen to anyone. So that is something to keep in mind. These patients in the ED should really be prioritized because there is a time-sensitive nature to the collection of the evidence and the forensics that, that needs to be done to preserve that evidence. So what is our job as ED providers? So we need to evaluate for any potential trauma, right? Maybe it's strangulation. Maybe there's lacerations. Maybe there's blunt trauma. We deal with all of that before they go for their forensic exam. That exam is most often done by a specially trained nurse. We don't need to do a detailed internal pelvic exam. We don't want to mess with the evidence. So that is something to exclude in general unless it's indicated because of trauma. The clothes themselves can be very relevant evidence, and we don't want to re-traumatize them by forcing them to get completely undressed. So one of the little pearls I took away from this piece was to examine them sort of piecemeal, you know, just lift up the shirt or look under the pants, you know, and look at what you need to look at, but not trying to re-traumatize them and trying to preserve that evidence. What about testing? Testing should include anything needed that it as it relates to their specific injuries, but also don't forget about pregnancy testing. They need STI testing. HIV, hepatitis B, syphilis. If you're giving HIV prophylaxis, you're also going to want to include CBC, renal function, LFTs as well. And then in terms of treatment, we want to give them a lot of coverage. We need to prophylax against unwanted pregnancy, STI coverage, trichomonas coverage, uh, hep B, hepatitis B vaccine or immunoglobulin if they've never been vaccinated is uh, standardly recommended. HIV post-exposure prophylaxis is on a case-by-case -case basis. And there is a national hotline you can call to get advice if you're not sure if this is someone who should get prophylaxis. And the other little pearl that they added was keep in mind human trafficking. Could this be a victim of either recurrent abuse or human trafficking? Because there is, again, another national hotline you can call if you think that this might be a victim in that scenario. So a very relevant piece with a lot of great pearls. Swami, tell me about your experience in your shop and how you guys do it. Well, I can start by saying that we didn't do a lot in terms of residency education about this. We do now. But when I was training, we didn't talk a lot about that. And so your experience was when a patient came in and then kind of piecemeal going through what you have to do. And I think that that's 
a real problem. So we do need good education. I think this piece starts us down that pathway. I think this is a place where you almost need an order set in your EMR so that everything just gets done. You click one button, you make sure you don't miss anything. You don't want to miss the trick coverage. You don't want to miss the HIV coverage. So just create an order set in your EMR to facilitate this process. And I think the most, one of the most important things that you said in that, that they talk about is the exam and how to examine the patient and be respectful and not re-traumatize them. And when I've done this, what I've learned from our sexual assault nurses is that each thing that I'm going to examine, I ask permission to examine that area. And if I need to move a piece of clothing to look at the skin, I ask before I do it, which obviously I don't always do that when I examine a standard medical patient. But here it seems to be take the extra couple of minutes to do it the right way because you can really, really easily re-traumatize someone. Jen, our next segment was on settling malpractice claims with Gita Pensa. And this is an interesting one. You know, Gita has taken a lot of pride in diving into these topics that we don't really want to talk about because we don't want to think about lawsuits, but we think about them. And so she really explores what really happens when a case is filed. There are three different possible outcomes. The defendant or the case can be dropped in. And obviously that's the best case scenario, right? Like you get dropped off the case. You don't have to think about it again. The case goes to trial. That's probably the worst case scenario. Or the case gets settled outside of trial. And settlement is the most common thing that happens, although depending on where you work, you might be dropped and that might be very common as well, but it's more common for settlement than to actually go to trial. And the cases are settled not because there was or wasn't wrongdoing or there was or wasn't malpractice, but it's really a decision of economics. And that's one of the things that Gita really stresses is that while we might have an emotional tie to this case and the outcome, your insurer does not. And your insurer really only cares about the economics the optics of the case. And you have to understand that, that that's not what they're playing. They're not playing with your personal emotions. They're playing with what are the economics and does it make sense for them to pursue the case or not? One of the really interesting things that Gita talks about is something called a hammer clause. So when the insurer says, we think you should settle, but the physician says, no, 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 I don't want to settle. I want to go. I want to go to trial because I know I'm right. I know that I didn't do anything wrong. I want to pursue this. You might have a hammer clause in your malpractice policy, which basically says that if you lose that case, you're going to be responsible for the difference between the judgment and what was agreed upon for settlement. It can be a lot of money, Jen. So we have to think about that. Is that hammer clause there? And that might really persuade you in the direction that you need to decide, should I just go with the settlement and let them take care of it? Or do I really want to pursue this? Yeah, this was a really interesting piece. And I think that we should all bookmark this one. If we ever get noticed that we're you know, going to be involved in a lawsuit. This is a good review of all the possible outcomes. And I think that that point about you know, the fact that we often don't want to settle, you know, our, our, our whole ego is often tied into this. And the fact that you know, from an insurer perspective, it is not like that. It is a totally different equation. And there are some benefits to us to getting this thing over with, even though it may not feel good. The trial itself can be really hard. And Gita's talked about that as well, the emotional toll it can take on you. So you have to kind of think about that as well. But this was absolutely fascinating. Mike Weinstock's Bounce Bass. I don't want to do too much med mal stuff, Jan, but our next segment is with Mike Weinstock. So it's going to be a little bit of <laughs> yes. bounce backs. There's going to be some talk of that legal aspect here too, but it's on such a great topic. It's on Vertigo and he's got a wonderful guest expert, Evie Marcolini. Absolutely. And boy, I mean, come on, dizzy patients are the worst. The worst. Absolutely the the worst. worst. 
And so Mike takes the opportunity to actually dig up an old bounce backs case from 2010. I love that he reached way back in the archives to kind of unearth a case to use it as sort of a sample case to discuss. But really what it comes down to is they talked a lot about telling the difference between posterior circulation stroke and peripheral vertigo symptoms. It's always a challenge. And so they walk through a bunch of different challenging patient scenarios. You know, the young, healthy patient without stroke risk factors with vertigo symptoms that could be central in origin versus the older patient with risk factors who presents with symptoms that seem classically peripheral. And the bottom line is that the history matters a lot. And Evie really emphasizes this. Posterior stroke patients have the acute onset of vestibular symptoms, dizziness, the vertigo, the nausea, vomiting. She calls it the all of a sudden symptoms, where they can often tell you exactly what they were doing when it started. And when you hear that kind of a story and you can kind of get that from them, you got to really think about a vascular etiology. And those symptoms, because it's a vascular etiology, are consistent and persistent. And they just keep, it doesn't matter which you know, position your head is in, it just keeps going on and on. And the difference in peripheral vertigo is that the vestibular symptoms that they have are usually triggered by movement. And in between that movement, the symptoms resolve. They can find a position where they're not feeling it. And that is different than posterior circulation symptoms. Taking the time to really suss out the history in these particular cases can be really helpful. And they walk through some cases and they keep going back to those historical features, making the point that the HPI is so important. Then they dive into a discussion of stroke in general. They talk about the importance of stroke mimics and considering all those things like migraine and seizure and all the things that are on the list there. And then they even get into pearls relating to things like intubating a patient with an acute ischemic stroke. They talk about blood pressure and perfusion and how important those things are. Making sure you don't get any hypotension is really important. And Evie recommends having some push-dose pressors on hand like phenylephrine is the one that she kind of goes to, available just in case you do get hypotension associated with your intubation. She also mentions on the other side, you don't want huge surges in blood pressure. And so she recommends pre-treating with a dose of fentanyl to prevent any sympathetic surge when you put that blade into the vellecula. So it's really a Goldilocks thing, right? You don't want it too high. You don't want it too low. You want to keep it right in that good perfusion range. Certainly medical legally, and of course, since Mike is on the case, we've got to talk about the medical legal factors, there is risk here. And it's usually in cases of stroke we've seen in the last few decades associated with failure to treat, but also failure to diagnose, failure to transfer in a timely manner, also on the table. And they talk about some papers that look at medical legal case series of stroke patients. They recommend having a low threshold to call a neuroconsult, have your consultant on board, and document in your chart why you did not give TPA when you make that decision. And always remember to look at your own imaging. Radiologists can miss things. You want to look at your own images and make sure that you don't miss that case. I love these segments, Jan, because it really is a very difficult presentation for us to work through. We've talked about posterior strokes with Evie in the past. We actually have another segment coming up in a couple of months talking about posterior strokes again, because these are so difficult. And one of the challenges that Evie talks about is that the NIHSS is not designed for posterior strokes, and it can be falsely misleading. You can see a very low score, even though the patient looks pretty bad in front of you. And so we have to understand all of those different risks. The fact that these patients often come in delayed and and thrombolytics might not even be on the table. And now we're getting information that even interventional might not be on the table, even if it's a basilar artery. So we have to understand that we might not be able to offer much, but at the same time, let's get this diagnosis as quickly as possible in case there are things that we should be offering. 
Yep. Crit Long. Our next segment was on tips for central line placement with Tim Montreef and Britt Long, looking at how we can use ultrasound, all the different ways that ultrasound can be helpful. I think we know that ultrasound for placement of the line is something that we should be doing. We can move past that to the other things that ultrasound can do. X-ray is typically what we use to confirm, make sure there's no pneumothorax, but it can be delayed. Even if you get a portable stat chest X-ray, we know sometimes that can take a little while to get done. Ultrasound can be your friend here. You can look and rule out that pneumothorax. You can look and see which direction the line is running. Make sure it's not running towards the head and then it's actually going down towards the heart. And then we can actually confirm placement in the venous side by doing an agitated saline study. And we can do all of that within a couple of minutes, which no matter how good your x-ray tech is, is going to be faster than getting a portable x-ray. Yeah, I thought this was a really useful piece. We talk about this on MRAP every few years. I feel like we kind of go through central line and ultrasound because obviously it's become such standard of care. The thing that was running through my mind when I heard this was about the nurses and the fact that I could say based on my ultrasound, go ahead and use the line. The nurse will look at me like, wait a minute. I don't, I'm not, I'm supposed to wait for the chest x-ray, you know, like I, I like you doctor. I trust you, but I'm supposed to wait for the chest x-ray. I'd be like, just give me that syringe and I'll push it myself. <laughs> and this might be a place then if you're going to be doing ultrasound for confirmation of lines to build in a little bit of a protocol so that everybody's kind of on the same page and you can move that forward. Actually, that's what I was thinking about because in our department recently, the nurses have all been training, you know, themselves on ultrasound guided IV lines. And I thought, you know, this is an opportunity now that they're really appreciating the power of ultrasound, which they always have, but it's in their own hands for them to really kind of take that next leap and kind of get to these sort of places where to see us doing it in this sort of post central line placement and to get on board with understanding the power of it and that it's okay to go ahead. Rick's Rants. All right. This month in Rick's Rants, he gets into some of the myths around urgent care centers. I thought this was interesting because we don't have a ton of urgent care centers around where I work, but they do exist. And Rick gets into how they may seem to be beneficial, but they don't actually do what we think they are doing. They probably divert a small number of cases from the emergency department, but those small number of cases can have a pretty big impact on the emergency department's overall income, the money that's coming into the hospital. And part of that is because of the minor complaints where we can take care of them pretty quickly and you are billing for them. So we have to understand the, the economics at work here. And then the last thing that Rick gets into that is really interesting is where this is moving next. It's not the freestanding urgent care center. It's the urgent care center associated with a pharmacy, the pharmacies that are going to be taking on more and more care by opening these minute clinics inside their doors. And what they're going to be doing is more primary care. So we might not see as much of this affecting us in the emergency department, but they're going to be replacing a lot of what primary physicians are doing in terms of hypertension and diabetes and hyperlipidemia management. And while that might sound good because pharmacies are everywhere, it might increase patient access. What we find is that these clinics aren't necessarily in underserved areas. So they're not really reaching people who need that access. It's probably not going to change too much in terms of ED visits right away, but we still need to know about where these patients are going, where they're getting their care, and how that might affect long-term when we see these patients in the emergency department. Yeah, I thought this was an interesting piece. And to think about the economics of urgent care centers, remembering that they're not put in places where patients can't pay for the care. There's always money behind these things, right? It's not just well-intentioned, you know, big box pharmacies that want to just help the community. You know, it's, it's always about money and you have to keep that in mind. But this is a good overview of kind of the impact of urgent care centers. And especially for those of us that don't work a lot in urgent care centers or don't necessarily have one associated with our hospital. We do in my place, but it's a very different design kind of thing. You know, it's a good overview. So I, I appreciated the piece. And 
just to mention, you know, Rick's rants are perspective pieces. We get a lot of feedback about Rick's rants, which we look forward to. And probably this one will generate some as well. I'm sure it will. And fortunately, Rick has very thick skin. So if you've got comments, send them over. Rick is happy to address them, to talk about them. And and often the comments that come in on Rick's rants is what prompts the next segment that he does. So mm-hmm. send them in. And uh, Rick is happy to hear those comments. I'm getting high. Got it. My own supply. Okay. okay. Next up, we had Eileen Claudius talking with a resident in her program, Joey Friedrich, and a child abuse pediatrician, Melissa Jimenez, about marijuana intoxication in pediatrics. A very interesting topic from the aspect of sort of a child abuse pediatrician. Very interesting. So kind of the basis of the piece here was the question about whether or not a little kid who comes in with presumed marijuana intoxication should be reported for child abuse. And the bottom line here is that, you know, we see teenagers who have exposures to marijuana, just like we do when they're exposed to alcohol, you know, they're trying things out in life. But the situation's a lot different when it's a younger child that comes in for possible marijuana intoxication. And it is potentially child neglect because this is an unintentional ingestion and could be potentially dangerous. So they kind of get into what that scenario looks like. And certainly there are variations in laws and local practices, which they certainly acknowledge. The two most classic clinical presentations of marijuana intoxication in kids are lethargy and ataxia. And there can be a lot of other symptoms as well, of course, but those are kind of the two key features that they highlight. What about urine drug screens? Well, they recommend that a urine drug screen for marijuana should be sent if you suspect it. And in the case of little kids, because this might sort of bleed into the area of neglect, if that's positive, you should pursue confirmatory testing, which turns out to be gas chromatography mass spec, because there can be false positives of that marijuana lighting up on a urine drug screen, but that that element of whether it really was an ingestion could be important. They recommend that you pursue that. They talk about cases where could the urine drug screen be positive because parents or other people are smoking marijuana around the child and they're getting passive ingestion. And that's why it lit up on the urine drug screen. And it turns out that that is highly unlikely that it would be positive from passive smoke. It's just not sensitive enough to pick up that level of metabolite. They also talk about breastfeeding and marijuana smokers. And it turns out very little is known about transmission of marijuana through breastfeeding. And they get into that a little bit really not a lot of evidence to sort of decide whether or not it is transmitted, not transmitted, really unclear. So a very interesting piece. And I'll give a little plug to our toxicology friends. This is a good place to get them involved. They can really help with what does that urine drug screen actually mean? What do you have to think about next? And I've even used them to facilitate getting the test sent over for the gas chromatography or the mass spec that's necessary. So your toxicologist can be really helpful in teasing this out. I know Jeff LaPointe has talked about this many times in the past with the urine drug screen, that you really do need to search it out and see, is there something else that's causing a false positive here? Not necessarily before you jump to, could this be a child neglect case? Because you need to protect the kid, but that does need to come into play as well as, is it a false positive or could it be a false positive? Toxicologists, always there to rescue you and help you out. Dubs. And then our final piece, Jan, was with Sarah Dubs from Maryland talking about blast crisis. This is one of those things that we don't, again, see very often, but we have to be ready to manage it. We have to be ready to understand how these patients could be coming in or when they're sent in from the cancer center with somebody concerned for blast crisis. There's a lot of different complications that can happen here that we need to be looking for. Anemia and thrombocytopenia are very common. Infection is an important one because these patients are immunocompromised. They're functionally neutropenic. And so if you suspect an infection, you want to hit them with broad spectrum antibiotics. And then the two big ones that we think about because they're uncommon, but they're real emergencies 
are leukostasis and tumor lysis syndrome. These are really sick patients, Jan. I'm sure you have this same experience as I do. We don't see it very often, but when we see it, we know it's bad. Absolutely. And you know, one of the clues is when the CBC, you send off the CBC and it's taking forever for it to come back, right? And it's like forever and forever. And you're thinking, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And especially in a patient that, you know, is referred from a cancer center or has a history in the past of leukemia, you're just waiting for that, you know, that call from the lab that, yes, this doctor, were you expecting a white count of 350,000, you know, kind of thing. That's always one of your clues. But it is a really, and it's, you know, not only all these medical consequences, but, you know, this is really bad news for the patient that this is happening to them. And so you're balancing, you know, a real resuscitation with delivering some some bad news that this is what's going on. And a lot of people who live with leukemia, whether this is their first presentation or if it's a recurrent presentation, you know, they're always afraid of this kind of thing coming. And so you have to deal with the emotional component as well. But I find these really interesting patients to take care of at all these complications, thinking about the cells and tumor license syndrome, you know, exploding and all of those dangerous intracellular things popping out. They're interesting cases, but they can be sad cases too. And a little plug here, Dr. Dubs would love to hear any questions you have on these oncologic emergencies. Because they are uncommon, we don't see them very often, but she is our resident expert and she would love to take on any of those. So send those questions over to us and we'll get them to her so we can get more of these segments on and answer your questions. And I almost forgot there is one more piece. I can't believe that we almost let this slide a best of 2021. That is later in the episode, our favorite pieces of the year. And not just Jen, you're my favorite, but the favorites of the staff at MRAP, the little skits, the songs, all of the stuff that you guys love all year round. We are bringing those back to you as the pieces that we love the most and we don't want to forget. And Jan, that is the mega summary. That's our program for the month. And of course, that means it's our program for the end of the year. This is it. We're done for the year until January 1st. We're not going to be back. We're looking at 2022. If you guys have feedback about our program, anything you want to see us try that's new, you know, we're always looking to improve here at MRAP. And so we look forward to any end of year feedback you might have for us as well. And I almost forgot there is one more piece. I can't believe that we almost let this slide a best of 2021. That is later in the episode, our favorite pieces of the year. And not just Jen, you're my favorite, but the favorites of the staff at MRAP, the little skits, the songs, all of the stuff that you guys love all year round. We are bringing those back to you as the pieces that we love the most and we don't want to forget. Oh yeah, they're like Christmas presents, because Hanukkah presents coming in your way. You know, they're we call them the Rappies. You know, it's like the Dundies. It's <laughs> it's our end of the year award show. So I look forward to that very much. Get them to the Dundies. All right, Jen, it was a pleasure as always. Love being back on with you. Love catching up. Love talking medicine. And of course, to everybody out there, remember to keep doing what you do, because what you do matters. It really does. And of course, we're going to do it super quick. We're going to do it in less than 20 minutes. That's my goal. Less than 20 minutes. Mega fail. Mega over 25 minutes. <laughs> what are you still doing here? Oh, uh, next year on MRAP. Oh, man. 1998. I remember I had so much more hair and a smaller <laughs> forehead. There's probably not a right answer across the board for all institutions. And there's two ways to do this, with fire or with ice. Cue a Robert Frost poem from high school. It hurts, but there's no reason to get a CT beyond that. But it sort of implies that there's like a contradictory group that's like for epilepsy. I've always thought that. It's very odd. The first words out of the patient's mouth were, you aren't going to shove that horrible tube up my nose again, are you? It hurts. Do I really need that? Can I just go home instead? 